0: Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and nothing should be construed as investment or legal advice. Now for a word from OnRamp. OnRamp is a Bitcoin asset management platform built on multi-institution custody. Leveraging our partnerships with industry veterans BitGo and CoinCover, OnRamp's multi-institution custody is a segregated vault, requiring two of three institutions at any point in time to to sign once a client's unique permissions have been met. Our industry-leading best-in-class approach to custody helps individuals and institutions secure new and existing Bitcoin positions. All keys are held in deep-cold storage and kept 100% offline, managed with institutional-grade security best practices. The custody solution eliminates single points of failure and reduces counterparty risks, ensuring maximum security and peace of mind. Onramp's suite of products includes our custody offering, a spot Bitcoin fund, private wealth services and inheritance planning, and managed wealth for advisors. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or a veteran in the space, we would love to connect with you to understand your needs and how we can serve you. Please visit our website at onrampbitcoin.com where you can schedule a consultation and connect directly with our team.
1: What you're telling me is that music is about to stop, and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of excrement ever assembled in the history of that. 1974 1987 92 97 2000 or whatever we want to call this it's all just the same thing
0: over and over we can't help ourselves i say when we sell hey hey, hey, hey i so- say when we
2: sell welcome back to the last trade first 2024 we're recording on thursday january 4th 2024 we're joined by matt Dines from build asset management with that being said we're gonna have a new format to the show a little more structure what do you guys think about a little bit more structure is that good
3: 2024 new new year new us
2: new year new pod
3: it's not the last, last, last trade. This was it was the last trade of the year. I think we might've confused some individuals in the last year.
1: It, this is the TLT to be bullish on.
2: <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Matt coming in and providing the pod with a meme to start the year. This is the TLT you want exposure to.
4: <laughs>
3: Matt, if you go to tltbtc.com, it will redirect you to our, our uh, the last trade. That's awesome
2: great donate great domain with that being said we new structure of the show is we're to come prepared with a few topics to discuss before we get into the main topic the main topic of the day sure won't be surprising will be the etf approval or further delay is imminent within the next five to eight days i believe so a lot of people are waiting with bated breath to see what the sec does but before we jump into the ETF. We're gonna start with the topic of AI and its impact on the broader economy. Obviously, 2023 was the year of AI proliferation. I believe it was October or November of 2022 when ChatGBT launched and essentially provided the, the economy with the first consumer app in the artificial intelligence world that, that reached mainstream success. 2023, throughout the year, we had an explosion of people using the products, people creating companies around artificial intelligence and companies trying to determine whether or not they should implement it or more likely how they're going to implement it into their stack. And then I think a really important topic that's on top of everybody's mind as it pertains to artificial intelligence is its effects on the broader economy, particularly the jobs market. So Let's just start with uh, the huge excitement within tech chart Logan. And this is pretty, this is a pretty astonishing chart, uh, especially when you compare it to the iPhone and the Apple App Store on the iPhone, which was considered to be probably the the biggest tech innovation and disruptor of the first 20 years of the century. And if you look at this chart, you can see that AI uh, using hacker news trends is exploding above the iphone levels that hit in 28 2009 now we must say obviously 2023 there's probably a lot more people on hacker news but still this chart is a bit ex- bit astonishing so jesse i'll throw it to you what are your high level thoughts on ai as a trend what happened in 2023 and what we can expect in
4: 2024. yeah it's, it's a <laughs> such a huge topic I- uh, you know when when AI finally came out you know with um, um products that that people can use to implement into, into their daily work and their businesses uh chat um my instinct was okay this is gonna be like a classic uh Gartner tech hype cycle um progression where and, and for people who aren't familiar with that that's it's the idea that When something is brand new there's a ton of hype about it and then the hype can't live up to where the actual development of that tech is um and so you enter this like this lull the the trough of disillusionment where it it feels like the it never delivered that that technology just never materialized as, as something real that mattered but meanwhile real progress is being made with making that technology better and and integrating it into the economy. And then eventually the impact of that technology is greater than the original hype expectation was in the first place, but but you go through that trough. And so that's what happens with every technology. And so, you know, for the last year, I've been assuming that's what will happen with, with uh, consumer grade AI here. And I still think that that's probably happening, but, I have to admit that I think it was, maybe it's just like that, that this version of AI is, is so, uh, um, immediately useful to anybody doing, doing a job, um, that it has impacted productivity, uh, already uh, to a degree that, that I didn't think would be possible, um, within a year. And I still have, I still have some doubts and I'm very curious to get Matt's, um, thoughts on this about. How much of the the sort of stock market rally um is actually because of like productivity and the economy doing well versus um liquidity and you know uh, having to print more more debt um which the us has been doing the last nine months in particular um which which ends up adding liquidity to to markets and things rally as a result so i'm not really sure what's what's happening here but i have to admit that um, that AI has been having a greater impact. And we've been seeing it at, at OnRamp. I mean, it, there are AI tools that we use on a day-to-day basis to help us be more efficient. Um, and I'm sure that's happening at, in every company right now.
2: Yeah, Matt, I know you and what you guys are doing at Build is really finance-focused, credit credit market-focused. What, what are your thoughts on this? Have you dabbling with it at all is it something outside your purview
1: um so for using the tools themselves directly um i mean it's a it's a huge assist for you know i'd say that second step in writing you know marty as a writer yourself you know cranking out content every day um you know the the way i approach it is first step is you know have your outline but then the next step is just kind of filling in the body you know uh, so putting the meat onto the onto the skeleton if you will um and I think just from from that element, it, like it's it's massive for you know people sitting in my seat, uh, where a big portion of our job is just to communicate uh, externally. Uh, so it, it's a huge help there. But I think you know to, to talk about the uh, the rally over uh, twenty twenty three, right? You know, coming out of twenty twenty two, you know, if you remember, Q th- end of Q three, there was uh, you know we. we Marcus kind of ran into the global constraint of uh how fast rates could rise um and eventually you found out who the weakest link was well it turns out it was the UK pension system um and and that's where we really had the the, the first liquidity driven rally i would say as uh bank of england stepped in with uh you know what we call maybe like a, a not QE QE if you will just a a couple Couple of weeks of uh, you know just patching up the system, offering to uh, uh, you know not uh, go fully ahead with the QT plans. You know, give them three, four weeks uh, delay for these pensions to to move around money and get there get their, you know, they, they had to sell something in their books, but a lot of these instruments they were selling, you know, private credit, stuff like that, that's illiquid, that doesn't have a bid. You get that moved and uh, reshuffle the shares. And, you know, that that created a a rally where the, the pressure in dollar markets eased, you know, FX, DXY, um, after that massive run-up in 2022, just kind of the pressure let out. And at the same time, you saw energy markets uh, roll over you know for the first th- like the first time and they did it again um recently same thing the, the september effect uh with the q3 and you saw it again this year but but last year was i'd say the big one um and that really cu- created the the rally going you know as energy comes down you know do- dollar a lot of the the capital and the uh the global dollar financial system is actually deployed into these you know shipping containers you know fill up a, a tanker with uh, you know crude or you know something like that like it takes a lot of dollar capital as, as you know All of those vessels are in transit globally. So as oil, you know, really sold off um, And the dollar pressure eased. those two things created a you know that first run of liquidity And then last year if you're thinking about you know, these first three days in the year of uh, trading that we're in now last year as opposed to you know this year we got out of the gate where kind of equities are stumbling uh a little bit last year it was the exact opposite it was just a really strong rally you know to start the year and then from there it was just kind of uh just momentum kind of gathering throughout the year uh you had that that first liquidity squeeze in march that um you know came in with the with the the, you know the, the banking issues uh but once this kind of the financial system realized that was not the actual you know credit crisis if you will that would mark the bottom tick of a of a dollar credit cycle. It was just kind of again full steam ahead, liquidity driven rally. So I think these two things were playing into each other. You know, to go back to the the question, the AI uh, was or is you know if you think about like the bleeding edge of tech in the economy, it's always the leader. You know, like whether it's the railroad era in the late eighteen hundreds or. Uh, autos in the early 1900s uh radio in 1930 to you know pcs in, in the semiconductor in the 80s 90s etc too you know the bleeding edge right now uh is uh it looks like from the technology standpoint it's ai at this point so those two things like the the dollar credit system and then you know the real deal these tools are um you know real uh they are going to impact productivity in the economy they're gonna have a massive downstream impact but i say it's it's both of these things you know playing playing off of each other right now,
3: yeah totally yeah. Michael yeah, I think uh Marty, you've been playing around with a lot of these tools, and I think you kind of fall are seen in the camp of like how transformative this stuff will be or can be, and uh I had this like unlocked the other day that, so the that chart we'll put in the show notes it came from uh Benedict Evans. Uh, i think it was a former partner at a16z but he puts out a year in review and i think this one was solely focused on ai and i think what he referenced is uh last year it was a lot of like what ai can do so it was like basically describing or prescribing like oh you can do it for you know management consulting tasks like your various tasks that you saw on the market this year it was like oh shit, like this thing is much bigger it was what are the questions and this core question that he put was Um, is it the next platform shift similar to like AWS coming from mainframes or like the iPhone and when you got an iPhone, you, you grabbed it and you didn't really know everything it could do, but it was transformative and it took out like, you know, your flashlight and all these other things. And then years later you start having Uber with geolocation and the other things associated with it. And we still probably don't know all the things that it will be able to do. Or does it change the nature of software and like how you interact with it when it comes to coding and the, you know things you, talk, you hear about and how they start to like daisy chain together and, and really being able to th- just dream up ideas. Um, but then the last part is like, does it take us to AGI? <laughs> and it's like this idea of what does that mean? And, and the funny part is I've like looked into this and and I could be wrong, but most people don't actually know how this stuff works. Like from the neural networks and the large language models, like as the weights start getting calibrated and more data coming through, they don't actually know how far it can go. And the, the long of it is, is that like, as I started looking, it's like, oh my God, this actually, it will change everything. And it will change everything in the same way that Bitcoin will change everything. And they actually will find a symbiosis with each other because they have to, uh, if you think about like when things change, the incumbents, they usually don't adopt it because it changes their, um, their fundamental business model. So the, it's net, generally net new entrants that come in. And so when you have that, you basically are going to have net new people coming in. And if it's AI, you're going to need business models around it that accept a borderless or permissionless form of money, because if it's a weird model that's happening and you don't want it to be used, you're like, well, I'm not going to let you use your ACH or visa or whatever it is in the same way. um, So like the the core idea is like they will naturally grow with each other. And I guess where this ties into Bitcoin is uh, a you'll need Bitcoin to pay for it, but then also Thinking about like the model, when we think about multi-institution custody or these other primitives where they're Bitcoin native, they generally are antithetical to the financial system as it exists because of like the centralization of assets and how you want to hold custody and then, you know, build products around it. And it's a similar thing where, you know, these models that are primitive to Bitcoin will generally be built by net new entrants, not the incumbents, because it's so fundamentally transformative or disruptive. To their to their um existing businesses so i don't know if that like fully crossed, but it's like this idea that both sides are so big and transformative that it will be new entrants that majority it's an overgeneralization but 90 percent come from new business models and new you know looking at what existed but then building it at a more efficient better rate than somebody adopting it and then plugging it into their system
2: yeah i think uh one thing he said there in particular is very high signal which is most people really don't understand how these large language models work in the first place and actually alex fetsky from the bitcoin times has been releasing a series of articles on tftc this week talking about exactly this problem and um so building a large language model is not easy and like you mentioned the weights and the data you're feeding it and how you're feeding that it that data are very particular, if you want a particular outcome. Um, And I think that will be the big trend of 2024 is people really learning how to actually build an LLM appropriately for the end use case they're looking to serve. And then on top of that, like AGI, I I actually had a long discussion with Alex on TFTC about this. He's pretty uh, convinced and he makes pretty convincing art. Argument that it's just a red herring like artificial general intelligence when you actually understand how these large large language models Operate they're essentially making probabilistic guesses at certain outcomes They don't really have true intelligence at the end of the day. His thesis is that AGI artificial general intelligence is a red herring um, Boogeyman that the incumbents can use as a means to create a regulatory moat and at the end of the day their large language models will um, achieve "quote unquote" AGI uh, as they define it, but at the end of the day, it's not really general intelligence. It's could be used as a, a ways uh, to to proliferate propaganda because you're basically getting answers from a model that was designed and created in a very particular way. And so that, that's another big trend I'm looking forward to in 2024 is a proliferation of more open source LLMs to compete with the Open AIs and the Um, anthropics of the world and I think that will actually open up the market uh, for these tools and I do think uh, in regards to what you're saying about the convergence of Bitcoin and AI that is where Bitcoin will shine uh, most acutely is because these open source models are going to have to be able to monetize. And I think that's the biggest problem with these open source models right now is like accessibility, who's going to run them, who's going to run the GPUs, who's going to give people access to these models and how are they going to monetize? And I think Bitcoin, particularly lightning network, enabled paywalls makes it very easy to monetize those. And you mentioned privacy, Bitcoin, if you're a company um, looking to maintain some semblance of privacy while you're using these tools that are being hosted by third parties uh, instead of having to set up an account with your name your address your company name and your bank account information uh, or your stripe information uh, a simple lightning network lightning enabled paywall uh, really cuts out all that it's like all right you you give me the money I give you the result I don't need any more of your information so that's a big theme to look forward to and then in terms of Where we are in the hype cycle, I do think it is we are still in a bit of a hype cycle. I think 2023 brought with it insane valuations for AI companies. Uh, Anybody in Silicon Valley who left a big tech firm to start an AI company got funded with insane valuations uh, out of the gate. And uh, I I find it hard to believe that most of those companies are going to be able to provide the value um, to their equity holders. that, That actually justifies those valuations. And so I do think that's where we are in the hype cycle where people were just able to slap AI on a business plan and get a lot of money and crazy valuations. I think there will be a massive correction there over the next few years. Uh, And then as it pertains to actually using the tools, I do think there is a lot of signal. And like you mentioned, Michael, we've been using it a lot at TFTC uh, as a means to accelerate the amount of content that we can put on our site, and I've been very public about this, so I'll talk about it here as well, but we've been using ChatGBT uh, and Assembly AI. So ChatGBT, obviously, everybody knows is the chat bot provided by OpenAI, and then Assembly AI is a transcription AI service. And so the problem I was having uh, trying to use ChatGBT to help us put content on the site is that it would hallucinate a lot. You'd You'd give it a prompt and say, hey, I wanna write I need help writing an article about what a bitcoin utxo is and chat would just go scrape the web and go to a bunch of different sources and then give me something that was completely incoherent and i'd spend over an hour editing and it really wasn't worth the time but now with the combination of assembly and chat via via tool called parseprompt.ai, um which is founded by a friend who reached out to me. It's like, I have this tool, I think it could work for you. What we do is we now take audio content, whether that's podcasts, YouTube videos, predominantly podcasts and YouTube videos. We feed them into assembly AI. It gets a transcript of that audio file. And then you tell ChatGPT, I need you to write me an article specifically on this content. And the, the hallucination essentially goes to zero. And so you can actually get good valuable content in written form that i can then put on the site and so this is an effort to accelerate what we're trying to do at tftc which is curate what we deem to be high signal content in the realms of bitcoin economics culture finance uh, health all that stuff and we've been able to accelerate me one man team writing one article a day To anywhere from like eight to 15 articles a day just using this tool and we're creating a process around it and so there's definitely signal there when you utilize the tools the right way so i think that's another thing that will materialize in 2024 is people getting more familiar with this and getting smarter on how to combine and utilize these tools to get the correct outcome that actually provides a, a more productive uh business at the end of the day and it certainly worked for us at TFTC, those are two tools that we use and then the other is MidJourney um, to create images for the thumbnails. And I've I've gotten really good at prompting, which has been a fun, uh, fun learning experience over the last year. But I do think there's definitely signal, uh, there's definitely a lot of use cases and there's definitely a lot of noise too. And so I think 2024, we're gonna begin sifting the signal from the noise and the trends people getting smarter on how to build llms open source competing with closed source ai that is actually one of my goals in q1 of 2024 is to transition away from chat gbt um and mid-journey to more open source models um, because i like to I, i think they're actually reaching parity with these closed source models and i do think the trend if it continues will have open source models um being Better than the closed source models. So that's one thing I'm looking to do rather quickly here in 2024. Um, and then that begs the question what is the effect on the jobs market? And that brings up the headline from Google, which is in 2024, due to their utilization of AI, they expect to lay off 30,000 employees.
3: Huh. Yeah. That's awesome yeah i mean you mentioned it just for yourself right like how deflationary imagine having like how many people you'd have to hire to run what you do and, me- and jesse mentioned some of the stuff we're working on and like the number the sheer number of like from an efficiency perspective but you teed in on a, a key concept marty about the open source and the, the models you can imagine a world where like you, it's every day you kind of look at twitter and somebody posts about uh like chat gbt or one of them being like to whatever the angle or ideology or political side is it's like one it's skewed in a certain direction so you can't even like be confident the information you're getting so the open source nature is important but then you kind of dove it dovetails into well how do you pay for that and that's where like an operation choke point this stuff all exists where then well can you pay with your visa can you pay with your credit card can you do that and that goes back to the disrupt disruptive nature of these technologies and then when you start to to play with the incumbents they kind of are able to say hey like you know maybe we, we just can't accept your visa because you're providing some of these like api feeds that are giving information that we don't think is is good or you know, for whatever reason that's why that symbiosis with like Bitcoin and AI is like a natural fit because you need a borderless a borderless permissionless form of currency. That's also digitally native, right. For, for obviously artificial intelligence, but that's where it just feels like natural to like tie in together. Um, which is also applicable for this whole pod of like where this is all going.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that's sorry, Jesse. It take yeah, a well,
4: it's so interesting that hear. I mean, Marty's at the forefront of a practitioner, um, Use of AI and and deploying that uh, a lot of things in there that that uh, I found very interesting and um, I guess first and first and foremost is um, Svetsky's position that it's a red herring and AGI isn't really possible and I and I agree with that um, that reflex to be wary of how this ends up uh, being used politically because that, that's certainly going to happen. Um, but the, then my my neuroscience background i my undergrad was in neuroscience um, has me pretty convinced that the brain is just a machine, just a series of switches uh, and you know that becomes a philosophical debate of like do you believe that the soul is uh, is separate from the brain, or do you think that the that the soul is uh, the unconscious product of this machine, this very real machine, uh, just a series of switches and and I believe the latter so if you believe that then it's possible to create a brain basically and it's possible to create um oh. consciousness um the soul the soul, so,
2: the soul is the promptee the soul is the prompter right it's prompt yeah, the brain yeah. To
4: do things so you know I, anyway that i've i am deeply in that camp as a result of studying that stuff from a from a biological point of view um and in all the it's all just uh synapses and and uh conditioning neurotransmitters and yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, that's all very interesting to me. And, but you know, at the, at the, same time, maybe that's the, the hype cycle in, in, in a way too, I agree with the, your point about, uh, valuations being too high potentially to, to, deliver real, um, you know, real economic value. Um, and that might be a part of what's happening right now that we're kind of at that Gartner tech hype cycle peak, before the trough of disillusionment in terms of the economics of this technology. But it could also be that, you know, people are gonna be disillusioned that, oh, you know what, it, it seems like this this technology just hallucinates all the time and, and doesn't have any kind of consistent um, consciousness that, that emerges uh, and so AGI is not possible. Um, meanwhile, like the, the technology could just continue getting better and better um, and these models turning into full brains basically, and then you have AGI emerge, um, several years from now. And, and it's all fascinating to me because, um, I was most interested in this stuff about 10 years ago. Um, the book, uh, super by Nick Bostrom was kind of mind blowing for me back then. Um, and it predicted all of this. It predicted the, the, you know, you, y- it sort of dovetails with the singularity is near hypothesis of as you have this uh, exponential growth of technology um, and Moore's law continues. Where does that lead to? It eventually leads to a point where computers become more intelligent than humans and then computers become capable of making better computers. And then that really creates the exponential um, a singularity moment where beyond that you can't see, you can't predict what the world is like because suddenly progress is taken over by computers instead of humans. Uh, and so that's the whole idea of the singularity. And that's what you know these tech luminaries for the last 20 years have been pointing towards. And part of the predictions that were in place at least 10 years ago were like this slow progression of, of uh, a, a, you know artificial intelligence in niche categories. And then those niche categories broadening until eventually it's AGI. And then, and then you sort of reach a singularity point. And it's weird that we're like, it's playing out. I mean, I don't know if it's exactly on the timetable that was predicted 10, 20 years ago, but uh, it sure is playing out uh, in terms of the, how it feels. Um, this, the, the world just feels to be changing at a faster and faster rate as, as tech become, you know, software eats the world. Um, and so I don't know, I, I agree that 2024 will be all about refining and improving on this stuff and a, a whole lot can happen in, in one year. And so we might find a greater degree of change over the next 12 months than we saw over the prior 12 months.
2: Yeah, it's going to be crazy I, so. uh,
4: I was
1: going to say, I'd second that. I think, uh, what, what you guys raised that point about the, the regulatory moat, right. You know, we, so far the narrative we've heard mainly in the uh, op-ed pages about kind of reg- reigning and regulating this technology it's been about the left tail risk right the the skynet scenario terminator you know, he gets hold in the nukes and oh my god that's uh, the existential risk to humanity um but i think there's something even bigger when you, you like listen to marty's story about what he's doing with tftc like his his use of these models is basically like having another teammate right um and you could think about that as they get more and more specialized. It's like one model is hyper-trained for one task. And then that that impacts organizations. You know, like so instead of like the post-industrial era, you know, like the you know, post-World War II era of uh, how corporations and businesses designed out their their hierarchies, right? I mean, it's just like a, a, you know a tree where you know maybe each each individual in the tree has six direct reports mapping up to them and then down to the bottom of the node where you look at the org chart, it might look like something like a Christmas tree, uh, uh, in terms of the organization structure. Um, but as you go through this, this is like this AI and this, this, you know, begins to really integrate into the the rest of the economy. Like this is gonna, this is gonna play in like to, to all of our social structures. Um, the existing kind of financial position of of organizations, as well as you know the the, the public sector, uh, which we can get into later. I mean, it's well known that, that there's serious problems there. Um, and also, I think you know you think about the, the the dog not barking right now that everybody's kind of aware of is what's going on in commercial real estate. Right? There's a lot of you know skyscrapers out there that are just impaired uh, properties. But I think what, the, like, what it boils down to is like our social. This is going to change our organization structure. You know, Marty mentions what he's doing at TFTC. Yeah, compare and contrast that to what the version of TFTC looked like in like the '60s and '70s. I'd say it'd be like the Rolling Stone magazine would be a good comp. Like it's the, you know, an operation, uh, you know, media entity that that tried to capture the the cultural zeitgeist of all these big things that were happening in the '60s, '70s, and, and all of that. And I think that's, that's what TFTC has its finger on the pulse for. You know, right now in this era. Um, but now instead of, you know, a massive media operation with hundreds of employees, you know, sending these writers all over the world to get the story, you know, Marty has himself and I don't know how many employees you have, but it's, it's, it's not hundreds. It's, it's more like one, maybe two, like you, and then you can get all this other work done. And so you're doing the same thing with. You know just a much lower footprint right and that that trickles into like everything indirectly if you think about it like it's office space like now we don't need to fill up you know a floor in manhattan with a, an office for rolling stone now it's marty and tftc and you know one room off the commons basically the bitcoin commons down in austin uh and everything that kind of Trickles down through that, but then it's also like the knowledge worker, right? That's been the base of the uh, this big boom in the kind of the post nineteen eighty world, as you know, the boomers kind of fully entered the workforce in the seventies, and then as they really hit their stride in the eighties, you know, the the the, the, the primary beneficiary of that was like this this knowledge worker, right? Um, and a lot of these tasks weren't, you know, really high brain activities that a lot of these people were doing. Like a lot of it is just operational paper pushing that is going to be the lowest hanging fruit for not just the AI, like the semiconductor and and the internet have already eaten a lot of the, 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 the easiest jobs kind of to automate and manage, but now we're going to move up into like the middle market and, you know, maybe front office part of the stack in terms of like the uh, financial industry footprint. So then when you take it to that level, you're like, all right, that's going to make this office CRE problem you know, uh, materialize as it already is. And then that's going to impact the banks and the, the financial sector. It's also going to impact the fiscal position as you think about like that taxpayer, right? Uh, this AI, it's basically a, uh, a, a quasi teammate. Uh, it's a, it's your new direct report, right? As you, as one individual, one human takes advantage of these, these tools and, and can hyper-specialize that those, you know, what we call them like synthetic workers. They don't need benefits. They don't need a 401k. They don't need health insurance and they don't, you know, there's no good way to tax. There's no W 2. So the real tail risk, like, yeah, sure, maybe they get a hold of Skynet and, you know, we all blow up. But I think it's even more in front of us. Like, all of this, you know, the faster this integration happens, these organizations and existing kind of social structures from the bottom to the top, like at every scale in society, are going to have to, um, absorb this and it's just going to be one of these periods it looks like where there's a massive amount of change not just in the like the the you know as um, jesse was mentioning like the singularity is near the technology is going to get better and better right we have tools that can make better tools now but then the speed and the pace that this system has to that our existing systems have to adopt to this massive change like it is it is, I could, I, the way I see this, it, the only way I see it is escalating. Like it's gonna become more and more yeah. front and center. So that, that left tail risk of the nukes firing, I, I don't know that that's the biggest thing to worry about right now. It's the eye on the ball. It's like, how do we, uh, all of our institutions, like what would be keeping me up at night if I were a policymaker in Washington DC? Is How do I keep society in line and and you know maintain some sense of organization as this massive kind of phase shift takes place?
4: yeah we we're, we're, we're entering the it's a massive acceleration of, of technology deflation right and yeah. what what Booth always writes about and and, and matt to your point like we're going to see the reemergence of ubi as as some necessary political agenda because there's going to be a, a lot more people out of work um, because ai has taken their job and how do we support these people? We should, we need UBI and we need to s- print money to, to help, you know, uh, retain society as we know it. And so that's gonna come roaring back. And, and overall, like you, you touched on something that I hadn't really thought about before, but AI is, is really going to cause the shift away from the knowledge economy that we've known that the, that the boomer world was based on and back and Bitcoin is a big part of this story because I think it shifts from a knowledge economy back to a capital economy, um, where it's going to be all about like, how do you deploy capital to, to create a product and, and, and good by leveraging AI. And so Bitcoin becomes the foundation of a new like capital based economy, uh, after this transition period that we've had over the last century, really of, of a knowledge-based economy.
3: Hard skills and hard money are the yeah, the, the I next think, next decade i mean just
2: to put some numbers on all this matt while you're speaking i went to my assembly open ai and parse prompt cost it's cost me 250 dollars over the last month and a half to create more than 100 articles where if i had to pay staff to do that it would have been thousands of dollars easily
3: so right so we we probably need our own uh we need to do a ai dedicated uh you know or themed tlt um but one thing that's like to play this or what you mentioned about like singularity, it's like there's this natural thing that you're doing, Marty, that I think is really important. And it's kind of like tricked myself into this uh, new pod with final settlement is getting ahead because we've been so busy working here. And I fundamentally believe that like unless you kind of adopt these tools, you just start to move. It's just like Bitcoin. You start to move behind like in, in the world because it's so crazy and transformative. And that we look at the deflationary nature of it and the layoffs and all the stuff, it's like, if you want to keep pace is like getting ahead of understanding the tools, how they impact you. And then I think like for a while, right, it doesn't naturally transition to just no humans are involved in a lot of these tasks. It's just, you're augmenting your personal skill set, coupled with these tools. And that's how you kind of like make the, 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 the cliff of like, who's still around and who's not um, I think is an important function or like kind of takeaway from a lot of this is it's not all like doom and gloom, it's like, obviously this is just a natural part of like deflationary aspects of technology, but there's an important aspect of just like starting to look into it. Um, because there's a lot of ways to play it where you you can benefit.
2: Yeah. And I guess that's the big question. I mean, anchoring back to the Google headline of their plans to lay off 30,000 employees this year because of how AI is affecting their business. I, I think that's the big question that is out there? Does this lead to like a hyper deflationary uh, event that has a, a fallout of the job market? Or do these tools incite something where you have like a thousand roses bloom? Like are these people get laid off, you know, to recognize that they got laid off because of the AI tools and view that as an opportunity to go start their own AI company um or start their own business, maybe not even directly related to AI, but knowing how to leverage. AI, which I hope any Google employee would know how to do to go start their own business. I think that's another big question that will begin to get answered in 2024. Is this something that's an existential crisis to the job market or are we Luddites? And this actually turns out to be something that is making many more people extremely productive and able to go feed themselves because they can leverage these tools.
3: I think it's an ebb and flow kind of thing. If you worked at Google, there's not a lot of places somebody after they get laid off from Google can go and do (laughs) their brain hasn't worked for, for, for a while. Uh, you know, there's 200,000, I mean, it's just, it's just a fact. Like you go, the the golden handcuffs are a real thing when you, these firms hire people so they don't go out to compete and they sit and roll and do the performance review. Um, obviously that's just a generalization, but it's a reality for a large portion of like,
1: just in general, like companies. I think too there's an element where I mean it's, it's if you get out in the field um and y- you go experience trying to you know go stay at a hotel right now or stay at a resort whatever like um or go to dinner with your family there's there's a almost a, it's it's pretty clear a like a shortage of employable workers at like the what we call blue collar jobs right like the Low value add jobs, you know, traditionally over the last 40 years that you didn't need a college degree for, uh, of a class, uh, an economic class that's fallen behind, right, over this massive bull market in financial assets. There's a shortage now of that type of worker um, versus, you know, where the economy's kind of like shedding jobs at the the white collar uh, sectors of the economy. So, there's something massive going on where you know this big shift in where society is allocating its its resources, including including our human resources, right? Um, is going to need to take place because like there's just you know it's pretty obvious now. There's all these impaired office uh, skyscrapers across the the metros in the U.S. And I don't I don't know if too many markets where it, it isn't an actual problem um, is is telling you like it's giving signal. Um, that there, there's something even bigger that needs to take place in terms of where our society has misallocated resources. And that goes down to where where we've trained up workers, where the college degrees have been, you know, what what people have been majoring in, and uh, you know, where where people have been, you know, kind of funneled into for economic opportunity. You know, as yeah. you know, like the Luke Groman, uh type of thesis says, like we don't have enough, you know, plumbers, electricians, yeah. uh, home built, cetera, and there's just going to be a, a massive shift uh that needs that looks like it needs to take place
4: and, and, and it, hasn't been possible. it hasn't been possible to make a life as like a like a hotel worker and and you know provide for your family um because of the last forty years of bull market and financial assets and how that has impacted the, the price of everything um but that and then that becomes what bitcoin makes possible again of like you can live a life of A blue collar life of saving Bitcoin and seeing your purchasing power grow over time um, because you have a good money and and you don't need to go to college to chase a high high paying job, which has been really the only like viable strategy um, or has emerged as the consensus only viable strategy over the last 40 years in particular. Um, So, you know, but I think that trend. I think that that kind of, uh, wisdom only percolates, uh, in hindsight, like after there's, there's literally a generation's worth of economic data that then, um, people from, you know, parents pass down to their children of like, here's what worked for my generation. That's what I wish I had done basically. And, and so I think, you know, 20 years from now, we'll, we'll get people saying you know what, just just accumulate Bitcoin and um, forget about college and be a plumber. And and maybe that's, you know, it doesn't all start in 20 years, but we'll have a, a slow transition back to that being like a, a, a prudent a bit of advice to give to the next generation. And that all makes it possible to re, to to restore um, what has been a gutted blue collar class. Um, so hopefully hopefully the blue collar workers find Bitcoin and incorporated it into their financial planning, um, because that makes it possible to be a blue collar worker and thrive. Uh, so I'm hopeful, but you know, we have to reach them with education too.
2: Yeah. The romantic in me likes to think that this will enable people to focus on more virtuous, (laughs) <laughs> um, endeavors like building beautiful things be- beautiful sculptures like yeah over break between the last two recordings i was home i flew into philly from austin and got dropped off at 30th street station in philadelphia to head up to new york for a pub key event that i was co-hosting and just sitting there i was I had to wait for like 45 minutes in 30th street station and if you've never been to 30th street station in philadelphia i highly recommend you take the trip if not only
4: when was it, it when was it built marty if you yeah, I,
2: that's uh when was 30th street station it built. it
4: has to be a turn of the century like beaux arts or art nouveau or or maybe art deco kind of building right Back 1933 when we still had, yeah. yep okay so art deco yeah probably
2: it's a beautiful piece of architecture hopefully we can get back to that with this i, yeah. I think th- we have to find a silver lining in this the white collar workers are certainly about to see uh, a mass extinction, if you will, it seems brash, but if having used the tools myself like it's happening, there's nothing we can do about it. You can be a luddite and try to dig your feet in the ground and tell the government to slow things down, but it's not going to happen. Um, we're gonna have to get back to building beautiful things, and I do think this will shift people away from the software world towards the physical world, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. it will just It'll be. Wait.
3: if you really think about it it's a practical obvious thing like if you look at it like a a pie and like if everybody's here in the white collar and then you have all these tasks and things that need to be built and historically for hundreds and thousands of years we've had this filter like we've just outstretched that via like money and all the things we know that you have to start going back to like people have to build things you have to deliver services in the real world it's it's a you know it actually shouldn't be that kind of like crazy that we say this or like the market is like starting to change it's like we all have to get into the 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 circles of our confidence and like what the market needs
4: yeah and and that's because the money and and investing in general has made it so that you can't aim for anything but the top 10 percent of jobs like there's just no there's not there's no way to thrive uh you know the funny hard to thrive a funny
3: example that's just relevant here is the two smartest for sure the one the other one i haven't worked with but talked to more mechanical that i worked in my limited career um called 15 years were mechanical engineers that had to go into like TradFi because it just didn't pay and that was what society told them one was you know, from india the other one went to carnegie mellon and they were the smartest people i ever met they didn't even want to be doing what they were required to do and they were the best at what they did they wanted to be out like working with like kind of like prints and all the things associated with it but they were there like working with numbers and that's because of what jesse just r- related to and there's so many people like that all over the job sector globally that are just forced into these functions that they weren't based to like Marty's point. It's not even necessarily romanticism. It's just a reality that people build things when they're not worried, like beautiful things when they're not worried about like being able to, you know, live paycheck to paycheck. And if all the things associated with come with like a bad form of money. So this is definitely going to happen. It's just going to take time.
2: Yeah. I mean, the.
3: there's, there's
1: nothing. Oh, go ahead on that one. I was going
2: to say, just to piggyback on that, Michael, the chief investment officer of the fund I worked for out of college worked under uh was a russian cosmonaut and immigrated to the us <laughs> wow. to to write wow. algos for, for like hedge yeah. fund indexes and stuff like that.
1: This is, yeah, it's the this joke about Google. New. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we we we've kind of experienced this as you know, the in the 90s all of the 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 PhDs, the quants kind of like got pulled in by wall street, you know, to create new exotic derivatives or price and create some you know, a uh, really complex formula so we could create a new instrument to trade. Um we've kind of seen the results of that we we saw this uh, uh you know subprime crisis where we you know built these models and created uh the triple a credit securities that the financial system needed um you know at the base layer of the system you you need a triple a you know credit asset to keep leveraging uh on top of the system and we saw it just completely fall apart in 2008 so we know we're building you know where we're, we're engineers are trained to think like in the laws of physics that these are like um you know uh, like honest discoverable truths of the universe it's not the way you know financial markets and humans you know at the end of the day kind of operate in practice but i just you know had this thought remember isaac newton right the the peak quant of all time right there's only a few others who hold up to that name like maybe gauss you know a few others Einstein like they, they're the best right he went through the same thing uh, I forget what role he had maybe it was like Chancellor of the exchequer in England or maybe he was the head of his uh universities endowment I can't remember what it was but he got roped in massively by I, I think it was the South Sea bubble and yep. At the end of the day, like he just threw up his arms and was just in complete disgust. He's like, I can calculate like the masses of heavenly bodies and you know all of that, but it's like, at the end of the day, like I cannot calculate or comprehend, you know, the the decision making and financial markets of, of like the behaviors of, of mankind. So um, it, this is, you know, other bubbles, you know, throughout history, it's like kind of history rhymes not repeats, but there's there's nothing new under the sun. As as much as you know, we're talking about this. the term we used, um, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes ago to call this was like a mass extinction event, you know, in, in the economy and the, you know, knowledge worker, the white collar sector of the economy. It's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it that like, just because it's, it invokes too much sense of fear. I I would, I I think, and panic. Um, this is something, you know, economies like, we've been through there's, there's precedence for this. It's going to be painful. There's going to be band-aids ripped off and people are going to need to adjust, but, um, we'll make it through and uh and you know i've heard you know marty i think you did a podcast uh with parker talking about the the gfc in 2008 that was a massive rug pull you know for people to deal with like just the financial sector got bailed out you know the bonuses continued (laughs) uh for the industry like no one uh faced any repercussions for the for the mistakes made over you know the pre-financial crisis era or or the decades ahead of um, you know, uh, uh, ill thought out decisions that ultimately led their in policy. But, uh, the, at the end of the day, like the American working class, whether you're white collar, blue collar, like you got rug pulled off of that one. So, you know, as much as, you know, we're talking about, this, this is a big technological shift that's underway and accelerating, but you know, we've, we've survived worse, I think, or hard, like, the, I don't want to say as bad as it is. I like, can keep digging and hitting rock bottom, but. We, you, this is just like how the world works we have to adapt we have to uh, uh integrate this into our businesses into our economy and that's that's really the only way to get to get through this is to get like cross that bridge build the bridge and get to the other side i, so, yeah, the I, Isaac Newton was I appreciate that extinction
2: event like this, this is day. a bit it's a bit too alarmist i agree matt that's actually one <laughs> thing in 2024 i'm not trying to be doomer I need white pills the white pill is we're going to get back to building beautiful things There will be some turbulence between now and the beautiful things being erected. But as Matt mentioned, this has happened many times throughout history.
3: And Marty was not kidding. 2024, new year, TLT, the last trade is an AI podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's an important topic. And there is obviously an intersection with Bitcoin. And obviously, if you're a capital allocator out there thinking about how to uh, place your bets in the in the financial markets is going to be a big disruptor to that strategy um, because if you're heavily dependent on commercial real estate, cash flows that may not materialize the way it has in the past moving forward due to how this is going to affect the job market. Um, and with that, I think, begin transition to the next topics, but let's just talk about the job market a little bit. We have this chart up here of quits versus hires, uh, and they seem to be hitting a point that would signal that, Many people are uh, wary about losing their jobs and they don't feel confident enough to quit and go find another one. So they're not worried about losing their jobs or worry about finding another job. They may be stuck in a place that they don't like, but they're not quitting uh, as aggressively as they, as they were in the past. If you quit, you're confident you can go find another job. And then on top of that, hires, both of these quits and hires are below pre-COVID levels. Um, so people are holding steady in their jobs and then, their employees are not employers, excuse me, are not hiring as many people. And this is an interesting chart to juxtapose with the jobs data that came out today, the unemployment data that came out today. That's also reaching, um, pre COVID levels as well that, that you had it up there, that, that one right there. Next one. Nope. Other way. Logan's looking for it. There you go. Um, So this is an interesting topic. We're getting two different stories from these two charts. One is that people aren't confident to quit and companies aren't hiring. But here, the unemployment claims data that was released today came in pretty low, back below recession threshold, firmly back below recession uh, threshold. So how are you guys reading the juxtaposition of these two data points? Jesse, we'll throw it to you.
4: Th- that last one kind of throws me for a loop. I don't know what to make of that. I, I I'm I'm really not sure. I mean, in, in, part of, part of what confounds all these uh, employment numbers is sometimes you have um, you you have people with multiple jobs uh, or, or picking up a second job, and that shows as you know like a like good positive employment data, but it's really people struggling um, and, and pushed to find a second job just to fit in some extra hours to make some money. Um, and, and so that is an additional layer in, in, all of this that, um, I don't know what to make of. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about this. I'm curious what Matt has to say on, on, uh, employment data right now.
1: Yeah. So the, the BLS numbers like the, the big print that markets watch is the the monthly uh nfp print non-farm payrolls comes out the first friday um of every month so we'll get that tomorrow as far as this recording so we don't have that one yet that's a massive like lagging indicator it's a it's a model estimate they don't actually go through like the the bls and uh gathered you know w2 data and be like all right how many new ads did you have how many like it's not a precise calculation by any means like the measurement is horribly inaccurate um it's it's a model um and historically you can see this in the data they go through you know your initial print like we'll get the december number for nfp job creation right on jan 3rd you go through two different revisions or updates like over the next uh ensuing two months so you have three months before the uh december number is locked in and i use air quotes even i like think it's this is completely ridiculous but they're not locked in like you see this they go back and restate after the fact um and they can be like five five to five to ten years later and restate the, the, let's say drawdowns or, or job losses in a, in a recession versus, you know, the expansion in, in the business cycle kind of uptick. Um, so the NFP numbers are just like, if you're using them as a speedometer, like they're terrible. You, they don't tell you anything like in real time, the continuing claims numbers and new unemployment claims, those are better because like they're consolidated from the state level, uh, like, like uh, so you have kind of a, a more of a bottoms up kind of real time snapshot and they're reported weekly. They're still noisy, but if you kind of, uh, av- you use a moving average, like it gives you a better signal from week to week. Um, it could be, you know, there might be noise from the data collection itself. It could also be, let's say Google, like if you have one big employer in a state and you know, here in, washington state where where i reside um say boeing was going to do some layoffs as you know hey we see plane deliveries or plane orders um you know uh slowing down um you might see like a big a big you know abnormal jump week to week so you could actually just get some some noise that's actually kind of real activity like it's not measurement error but it's just coming from like the the sample and just idiosyncratic decisions uh from business to business but those continuing claims numbers are actually kind of better as a as a signal to where the economy is in my opinion than than just watching nfps and seeing where it comes into month to month now the markets you know there's equities and bond markets just are hyper attuned to respond to that um nfp print as they come in one two and three it's it's kind of like uh the beauty contest if you will and we're we're judging people based on you know what they look like at age 20 as opposed to you know maybe where they are in life 30 40 years olds whatever in terms of what they've actually accomplished and how how it actually plays out after the fact um, so this will create a lot of like noise and markets but it's not really a reliable signal if you're if you're basing asset pricing on uh, on yeah. those reports but Financial markets are doing that, so it uh, it makes it hard um, yeah. from week to week to really get the picture, or month to month, if you will, over the short term to see what's going on. But as the bigger, longer term revisions come in, they've already, like you already saw the BLS revised down prior months of last year for job creation we claimed happened, and you know the first few quarters of the year those got revised down, and that was after the third and you know supposedly final print. Once the facts are rewritten. Um, you'll see the economists come out and, you know, put in some new final estimate and and lock the number in stone. And it just kind of begs the question, like, what was the real truth? Like, how do you know? Because now you're going back and basing this on a model. Like, do we go back and, you know, collect the W-2s and see the real data? Uh, what, was, what was the actual uh, uh, number? It just, I, I, th- I think, in my opinion, it just goes to show how hard it is to technocratically manage the like an economy from a central planning standpoint from the tops down based on policy decision, like like from an office in Washington, D.C. where you're trying to micromanage all of this. And it kind of bundles it, it, the bundled into that question is like how we manage monetary policy right now. It comes from, you know, a board uh, of people sitting around a table at the Eccles building or <laughs> communicate like one interest rate and, and manage this whole thing. It's very hard to do.
4: Yeah, it, it's all kind of backwards looking too. I mean, jobs numbers can can be looking good right now because sentiment is kind of good right now because we've been in nine months of positive liquidity uh, that has caused markets to surge. And so I I kinda have this I have this sneaking suspicion that we're in a bit of like a dead cat bounce um sentiment wise right now. Like the rally right now doesn't feel <laughs> to me it doesn't feel real like or, or sustainable, I should say. Um like, are we really going to rip to new highs uh, right now with what's going on with the deficit in particular um, and, and the national debt? Um, and, you know, the AI explanation is like, okay, maybe maybe it's real productivity. But this, I don't know, I, I have this sneaking suspicion that we're going through the same motions that um, 2007 into 2008 had with like, People saying, oh, we, we, had a, we had a little gully uh, and things are recovering and it's all good. And people actually fall for that sentiment, um, it, you know, and, and you get caught in a, in a bull trap um, where you're, you get bullish and sentiment feels fine right when you shouldn't. Um, that's a little bit doomer on my part, I admit, but I just don't see how we're gonna, the stock markets are gonna rip to new highs but you know then again it, it comes back to liquidity and and uh if if we're in a QE environment because we're printing new, fresh debt um you know deficit spending is is the name of the game maybe that's what's going on I I, I don't know I'm, I'm a little perplexed I, at how the stock markets have been so positive well because it's just it's just so just it's, right? okay. it's just, so, dis- it's just yeah. so dislocated from the fundamentals
3: Matt's going to be able to more eloquently explain yeah, it Matt, but but from a pure just like looking at the market those numbers I like the first chart because it basically supports what we all have felt or if you ask anybody people are getting laid off and they can't go find jobs but everything else will say otherwise and that's like the fundamental when you think about like interest rates rising like natural cost of capital increases people spend less so companies make less so they have to let people off these are just like natural order things but the stock market and the charts and the Fed speak will say otherwise and I think that's the part that's confounding on your side Jesse is like well what's happening because we're at all time highs, but then there's all this like weirdness around us that doesn't feel good. And I think that's natural, right? Cause like we're feeling it and seeing it in the market, but uh, the actual stock market is saying otherwise.
1: So how to judge where stocks are like, that's just the Keynesian beauty contest. Like one of the best, (laughs) like, you know, just to say what Keynes got right. Like talking about it's it's really castles in the sky and trying to come up with valuations. Like as much as people think like, Equity markets are the hardest thing to predict. Like a lot of it is based on like sentiment, um, you know, as opposed to you know people who think they're rational, value-driven investors. You know, it's like Dogecoin thing out. Like it it's like doesn't Dogecoin work that the way in practice. Yeah. Here's what we like. Here, like it's, as far as trying to get your bearings on where this thing is, like dig deeper into the financial system. Like the commodity sig- markets are a great signal. Um, and then I'd say like interest rates, and then we can talk about building a case like the the bitcoin case for what we know on top of that but i think like going into the base layer like down to the studs of the financial system looking at interest rates right now right we've been paused like we've been flat at you know fed funds 5.25 to 5.5 for now two quarters right rates like they're done hiking like from all intents and purposes it would take something abnormal versus all the other rate height cycles we've seen uh in you know the the rich yeah. data sample era i'd say like post world war ii for another hike to need to be done here like something pretty significant would have to take place um if, but if you're but, if
4: yeah but yeah, but uh h- historically um the the uh crisis hits like 10 after the they hiking right so we're still like within that normal time frame of like yeah, t- totally normal on schedule. Like this, th- yeah. I mean,
1: policy might at this point actually be a little bit ahead of of the actual business cycle, where they have some some room as opposed to being on their back foot. But I think if you're, if you're looking at signals for like like rates need to come down, like you're you're seeing it like with the like we know with office CRE, like there's a lot of issues there on the rollover from uh, the 2021 uh, trot or uh, vintage of of deals that came out. Like and it makes sense, right? You had this the massive fiscal and monetary like impulse uh like unseen uh from from Q3 2020 that was trickling into the system. So you had a ton of bad deals um, made. And so those are gonna get ro- roll over and refi. I was listening to um you know the CIO of Muddy Waters last night. He's made a case for for a short on uh Blackstone Mortgage Trust where I think he said 73% of the loans, and I don't know if that's loans like by count or loans by uh, by principal value in the portfolio can't finance out of uh, their net operating income either um SOFR just alone without the spread or SOFR plus the spread of their of their debt financing costs. So 73% of their portfolio they, they've assessed as analysts um, is going to be in trouble rolling over on, you know, commercial properties like the skyscrapers and, and, and Metro America throughout. So like rates are going to need to come down from that angle on bank balance sheets. Um, and you see it in the the federal deficit as well. Like the interest expense on, on the chart, um, you know, you can go to Fred and look that up. Like it's just a, Once just a I vertical line up. It like yeah, it is. It is massive um that spike it's taken so front end rates and the, the debt refinancing rates like there's a need from the borrower standpoint like it has to come down it's not sustainable and if you're looking at the financial markets like for for the capital markets desk, like within the banks you've got a lot of signals that's like they're they're going to come down as many people are still in the we're higher for longer camp it's just a matter of time uh in, in my perspective so you got the like the the one year overnight index swap rates right the, the the, these are derivatives contracts, if you will, or, or swap agreements between counterparties. One leg pays um, Fed funds overnight over the term of the contract; the other pays a fixed rate. That rate is coming in massively. Uh, it's it's way inside of Fed funds now. It's been plummeting since uh, September, um, and it's following the two-year and you know lo- lower uh, mat- duration or maturity coupon Treasury bonds. Like they're coming in. You see the six-month bill auction. You know, over the last three weeks in um, December, has come in about 25 bips, which is like that's the equivalent of one rate cut, right? And then you've seen sulfur turbulence pop up. Like it's not Q3 2019 by any means yet, but you're starting to see sulfur spikes as we the system starts moving from an excess cash phase position to like, now we have an excess collateral. So it's kind of, as Nick Bottia described it, he had the best analogy here. Um, we're gonna run out of pawn shops uh, who, are, who are willing to to lend dollars uh, into the system. Like there's too much collateral, not enough dollars available uh, for for short-term financing. So, and then on top of that, these quarterly refunding announcements too, where you see where the treasury issues coupon bonds, so like two year, three year, five year debt, that's spiking up, so the treasury is reallocating its supply into the two three five year type coupon auctions and so that's bottomed um, which has over the course of you know four decades kind of signaled the the top of a, of a rate height cycle and from a borrower standpoint that makes sense right you want to start deploying in um as, as uh, raising more more uh, debt there extending a little bit out um, as rates start to come in, so as far as equity markets, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know. Like, is this, Jesse here trying to tell me uh, is this risky here? Is this you know double top, whatever? I no idea. But where you can actually build some sort of foundation and get your bearings, like find a compass, like look to the interest rate markets, and then from there, I try to build up my you know my thesis or positioning, if you will, on what's going to happen off of those things too. So take yeah, it from yeah. there. But uh, we get into the meat of the topic.
2: So the, the treasury, shifting towards, um, debt on the shorter part of the curve. They're basically assuming, like, all right, we'll lock in high high rates for two, three, five years, with the assumption that rates will come down, and then we can issue longer data bonds at lower rates. Uh,
1: it's, it's it's I mean, it's kind of the opposite. It's like they the, <laughs> they're they're showing they're going to borrow more there because they see rates coming down, I and mean, yeah. that's the signal. It's like we're going to start stepping that up because we need like rates need to come down. Okay, and then what that's going to do too? I mean, we've seen there's all these treasuries out there with like massive mark-to-market losses. Um, But as rates come in, I have no idea what's going to happen to the long end rates. Like that may stay, you know, relative ballpark. You know, we're at roughly four percent now. We were at like, like we were hitting five, right? Um, Back at the end of September, long end may still stay volatile. Like we, you know. base case right now probably don't expect to see the long like the long bond coming into like 1.25 like where it was at the lowest of 2020. I don't think the long end investor at this point like trusts the that to like a 30 year debt est- instrument at 2% from the US Treasury to be able to maintain purchasing power. Like that bridge has been crossed they've taken too many losses going to that island, they're not going to do it again and, and, and bid that thing to 1.25. Like it, maybe that happens if it's like absolute panic, like we get a, something worse than COVID at the bottom of this credit cycle. But I think the the lessons learned and the pain inflicted, like I don't see it going there again. Now, where front end rates come in um, and they, they, you know, base case they do come in, um, I don't know how far they go, but this whole effect, like it's going to make all of the debt they is- issued in 2022, 2023 at these higher rates, that's going to kind of pull up their balance sheet capacity. Um, and it's going to kind of pull in a lot. Like, let's say you had a five-year bond issued in 2020. Now that's a 2025 maturity, a treasury. It was issued at like zero, basically took massive losses and and 2022 and 2023, but now it's kind of pulling to par, and uh those and then the rates are going to come in as well. So, you're going to get more kind of buoying on the bank balance sheets and the financial system balance sheets. So, that sh- you know, expect that you know, base case to create more capacity for more credit creation. And we have you know, some continuation. It's going to be weird. We talked about all this kind of strange new stuff in AI and commercial real estate, all of these dynamics that the system has to deal with. But as we go through this cycle, like they're going to have some capacity to, to try to absorb all of those things that they need to, to tackle. But I'd say this, like this is going to be like their, their, their menu, like what's on their, their plate. If you're like a lender or if you're at the U S treasury or, you know, one of the key players in this system, I think your, your, your docket of work is like harder than, most if not all of the cycles maybe not 2000 2008 was like really hard to deal with but uh this one's going to be more of a challenge i think in terms of like the lineup of what you have to go through if you're sitting at one of these desks yeah in the cycle ahead
2: trying to keep the rube goldberg machine
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely we'll create another four-letter acronym and you know problem right? (laughs) well
2: that's another Interesting thing to look out for 2024. That's what they do with uh, BTFP um, in a few months here.
1: That's that's coming up on renewal and another interesting Im- impact there. Like it's based on this one-year overnight index swap rate, and uh, that's come in like massively. So you can go and post your one of your 15 different government agency bonds uh, that are allowed on the list of collateral that they accept. You can post it take out a loan now on a rate that's come in a lot, like it's sitting at, you know, something like with a four handle and you can go redeploy that into another interest bearing instrument earning, you know, still you can get five somewhere, say whatever. But there's just a lot of that, um, a lot of that BTFP borrowing is just kind of balance sheet arbitrage to pick up free money right now. But I think in the months ahead, like if there are real problems and you know what we've been talking about, the loans uh, that are, underwater impaired that needs some sort of workout. Expect that as we come into mid-March to, to start to become more of a, a bigger issue as is that, that, that needs attention. Does that continue as some sort of perpetual facility or do they you know, close it down, whatnot? Do they roll it over? Um, something that uh, we're gonna need to see resolution on.
2: Yeah, it's interesting when you issue these new four-letter facilities, it creates these R plays that were probably unforeseen. Yeah. At the outset, that have externalities of their own that you have to deal with on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. It's all. <laughs> I'm just thinking again, Rube Goldberg machine. That's what it seems like. And they're scrambling to keep it all together. Can they? We will see. They've proven to be able to do it up to this point. But um, mm-hmm. with that in mind, transitioning towards. The last couple topics that we have for the episode, um, we're going to end on the ETF, but before we get to that a stepping stone to that, there was an article out in Bloomberg when it dropped dropped um, January 4th, today, this morning. City alumni plan Bitcoin securities that don't need SEC approval. So the new offering called Bitcoin depository receipts will be similar to American debos- depository receipts that represent foreign stocks, a startup called Receipts Depository Corporation, very creative, or RDC, said it plans to issue the first Bitcoin depository receipts to qualified global institutional investors and transactions exempt from registration under the Securities Act of 1933, known as BTCDRs. The offering will give institutions access to Bitcoin securities through U.S.-regulated market infrastructure and cleared through the Depository Trust Co., according to a release from the company. So, right before an apparent imminent approval of the Bitcoin ETFs, the spot ETFs and a a group of city alumni are launching this depository receipts product. I've never heard of these products. How do they work?
1: So it's a great, great summary there, uh, Marty. It's kind of fills in a few, kind of gaps on my map on uh, understanding what this thing was. But I heard a couple key words there, global institutions. So this is going to be U.S. financial institutions selling this product. And I was like, who is the customer here? It says, it says global. So it probably be X, like, outside the United States, offshore entities. Um, so if you think about... Who does this benefit? Right, you're getting private keys. You know the UTXOs. The, the Bitcoin. It sounds like right now is DTCC cleared. Um, the Bitcoin is going to be to be you know custodied. You know where do you call its home? It's going to be U.S. domiciled, Is is my understanding here? So you get the U.S. capital markets, all the rule of law, everything that benefits investors, and why besides the economic growth, and we, we can talk about the bullish case for this country, everything we have going for us, like in the positive column, um, you get those benefits um, in terms of capital markets. And the United States has kind of the most uh, well-structured, robust capital markets, I would say, uh, in the in the world. You know, you have a lot of competition from London, Tokyo, Singapore, et cetera. But uh, this is still where global capital wants to allocate. So I think that's where this product is. and part of the theme as we get into the bitcoin etf and what this means like we can talk about the cash settlement i my read on this is the big capital markets players are are they're, they're awake um and they want to see the the real capital stock and at this point you know maybe they're not all convinced that bitcoin is the real capital stock um you know, Jesse, was this before we were talking or during the interview, you talked about the shift from kind of a financialized economy into like a capital economy. I think that's what this is. You want the UTXOs fitting within the borders of your nation state. So I think this, as you talk about the the ETF, uh, these 13 ETFs that are looking for the approval window to come through, um, I think this is part of that theme. Like... This is going to become more and more pressing of a challenge as more and more nation states enter the game. Marty, you've done a great job talking about this, you know, and the and the follow ups to El Salvador going first in 2021. You know what you talked about with Bhutan, what you talked about with um, Oman, you know, entering the mining game. Have there been another one like UAE. Like are, there, there's other nation Argentina states getting in, the in, mix in. Mix now, Argentina, yeah. Yes, um, I think they're real. I think you need the Bitcoin UTXOs inside of your border if you want to actually have a, uh, a capital base inside of your society's economy. Jesse, thoughts on this?
4: I, I, yeah, I'm unfamiliar with the, this type of instrument. So uh, I, I suppose it's, it's like a clever way to have um, like a fund-like vehicle but it's unclear to me what the like stipulations are and like redemption policies and, and who knows what. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Matt is keying in on th- this seems like a, a play for leveraging all the attractive qualities of, of having a, a structure in the US, um, which is beneficial to, to the US ultimately in this like in this uh, race that people don't seem to know we're in of uh, where is going to be the, the native home of Bitcoin. Uh, hopefully it's in the US because that'll, that'll be, uh, that'll be our, our international advantage or add to our international advantages for the next century if, if, if we manage to achieve that. So thankfully, capital markets are waking up to uh, uh, needing to set up this infrastructure um, because there's an opportunity for them to make money. Um, But, you know, I think it actually has this geopolitical advantages um, if if people earnestly pursue uh, building Bitcoin infrastructure here. Thanks for tuning in.
0: If you're interested in exploring any of these topics further or want to learn more about how we can help you secure a new or existing Bitcoin allocation, get in touch with our team at onrampbitcoin.com. We look forward to supporting you on your Bitcoin journey.
2: It seems like Matt, what you said, people at the institutional level are recognizing, all right, we need exposure to this. I think this product's pretty unique, particularly that you'll be able to track the UTXOs. They'll clear through DTC, which is interesting, an interesting development, which hasn't been um, brought to the fore until today. And then this tweet came out, which signals that this trend is definitely growing. Uh, by Marty party breaking a pattern is emerging other funds registered as securities already trading on the Nasdaq are amending their prospectuses that they can now expose 15 to 50% of their AUM to Bitcoin through the spot Bitcoin ETFs. Here we see advisors preferred trust filer CIK 01556505 can now hold 15% AUM and spot Bitcoin through Grayscale GBT. That would be their ETF. The fund may invest up to 50% of its total assets to indirectly gain exposure to Bitcoin through shares of Grayscale, Bitcoin Trust, ProShares, Bitcoin Strategy, ETF, and Bitcoin Futures contracts. Uh, Don't need to read the one quadrillion. I love this one. But this this is essentially like the amending of prospectuses to include Bitcoin into the buckets that their mandates allow them to invest in.
4: Yeah, people, people have been wondering like, okay, what, who cares about the ETF? Like, you can buy Bitcoin uh, yourself. Like, what does it matter? <laughs> this is why it matters, uh, because the ETFs create a, a viable vehicle for funds to deploy a portion of their capital uh, into Bitcoin exposure, which results in, in the ETFs having to buy Bitcoin to back that, um, that capital um they have to you know they have to actually buy the Bitcoin so this is how you know this is how I don't know who who's running this fund um it could be a small shop it could be a medium-sized shop or a big shop um but that sets a you know that's a a precursor to what's coming I think of of every fund saying oh shit okay we can't just have our usual strategy in, in in this era where Bitcoin is monetizing we need to add in another pillar to our investment strategy and have Bitcoin be part of our allocation, and then and then they're all going to amend their uh, their terms like this and uh, give themselves the flexibility to do that when when it's a bear market and you know Bitcoin has drawn down seventy percent. You know maybe that happens three years from now, from from a peak of two hundred thousand, uh, and we'll have another drawdown and and then. These funds that now have a vehicle, the ETFs that they can use and have amended their prospectuses um, can come in and say, "All right, now's the moment we've been waiting for let's pile into Bitcoin and now, you know now you're talking about setting a setting the price floor three years from now in a bear market because Wall Street has woken up to this thing is going to keep happening It's beautiful <laughs> Yeah, a couple of weeks
1: ago on uh, the last, tour, I can't remember which guest it was, we were talking about our commodity funds gonna allocate in. Um, and it comes down to like a portfolio manager and the investment committee. Someone has to like recommend that, that decision. Like it has to go through a process. You don't just, um, you know, on a fund, it's not like you, you know, hey, I'm gonna buy Bitcoin as an individual. You're just like, oh, I'll just open a Coinbase account or, uh, whatever, an unchained account, let's go go with that route or, um, you know, sign on with on-ramp, et cetera, make that decision. Like, you've got to go through a process to get this done. But the reason you would do that is because I either want to buy or sell it. Like, I, I see the, the market and at the end of the day, we're all judged as a, you know, a fund manager um, on, our, on our portfolio returns against our peers, right? You want to get into the top of the category. So someone sees, you know, whether they, you you would make this decision to allocate 15 to 50, 50% in long because you see that as, you know, a performance enhancer, if you will, like to get in front of that. So then you're looking at, you know, stepping in front of, you know, your peer group and hopefully generating excess return. So as this, let's just say we have a Bitcoin bull market like that we're in, we've already gone through, I believe the first wave of it, but it's 2024 kind of you know, proceeds and we work through this, um, you're gonna see the portfolio managers and um, investment committees who make the right decision, uh, rewarded for it, come into the top of their peer group. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is all about capital returns. So yeah, bullish case, and this is uh, just another capital route pulling in towards ultimately like buying UTXOs.
4: Well said. Yeah, and that's and that's from you know you you've been in that seat, uh, so you know the incentives that are at play for every portfolio manager. It's like, how do I get an edge? How do I oh. get that promotion because I've delivered performance? And then here's this low hanging fruit.
1: Yep. So here's here's a like uh, untold secret I think of the the fund fund industry. Um, if you look at the big passive players. BlackRock, Vanguard, you know, there maybe you throw in like, I don't know, a TIA Crab or like T. Rowe Price or someone in there. There's only like three or four who are growing as we've shifted like the the dominant paradigm since I'd say like 2000 sometime. Like you've seen active phasing out and you know, the just the shift, the capital shift, like a lot of like 401Ks, that constant monthly drift. Like you just have a, a, a recurrent and consistent bid for passive. Um, the active fund managers, you know, Franklin Templeton are like predominantly active. Um, they're actually not attracting capital inflows. And it's it's been like since the QE era, since the GFC, you know, it's like the entire 2010s. Their, their AUM growth has been coming almost entirely from price return. Um, and, you know, you think about why, like QE happens that pushes financial assets up. Um, and they're not attracting inflow. So they see this this problem, like how do I beat this bid for passive, which is primarily coming into or manifesting through bidding up equities and and was until you know 2022, um, bidding down bond yields or bidding up bond prices. Um, that's all started to shift in the last I'd say 12, 18 months or so but uh part of this etf route I, I believe is is um you know searching out you know if you will that alpha that performance etc so you know we'll, we'll see what happens you know i think everybody on on this uh this panel bo- is, is bullish on bitcoin for 2024 and would be making the same th- decisions if they were in that seat but this is one of those kind of strategic bis- business decisions that you can make from from seat to seat um from a fund like this, and it's very hard to differentiate yourself from your, from your peer group, 15 to 15%, like 50% is a massive allocation. Like if you're a multi-asset manager and you're spreading between equities, bonds, whatever, I like I hope it works out for them. Like, and they time the trades correctly. Um, you know, if they time it wrong, they're going to bid it or they're going to buy it, like buying at the top of a Bitcoin cycle right in front of that 85% drawdown yeah. can be devastating. So like, but, but they wish, there could wish be, them the best.
4: <laughs> yeah, but there's there's bound to be you know we there's a bunch of people on Wall Street who've been paying attention to Bitcoin and yeah. and have at least gone down the rabbit hole enough now to be like okay the having is increasing scarcity thing that's happening pivot you know QE environment seems to also juice Bitcoin and and everybody's expecting that pivot. Um, and there's the etfs so like there's all these reasons to front run right now so i don't like if i was if i was a portfolio manager trying to like better my career i would probably be willing to bet my career on bitcoin having a big 18 months and maybe but that's Matt, what's going on with, Matt, with the few. You, of them. yeah do you think they're that sophist-
3: sophisticated or like i think <laughs> a like the concepts Jesse mentioned, like, I don't even think having um, like, we talk about 21, 21 million, I think having in 21 million, probably there's 15 to okay. 20%. But the question I was gonna ask is how much do you think uh micro, I could see them looking at micro strategy and saying like, Oh, that's interesting.
1: More than they could like, have already like, allocate most, most of them. Yeah. It was probably within policy to allocate to a mid cap right. company like micro micro strategy or, you know, right. You gotta catch yeah. that like time your trade. Well, get your entry. Right. Be there before you're buying into a blow off top. Otherwise if you like if you have the right thesis but you're terrible at execution, like the results can be pretty bad from the the standpoint of like what can happen. So like I don't want to sound like I'm putting anyone down here. This is not a negative here, but if you look at El Salvador's allocation into Bitcoin, like you gotta pat them on the back for making a bold move. Taking a big risk, like going out there. But Bukele, like it was three weeks ago, I think, he published his trade blotter, if you will. I don't he didn't put the actual trades on, but he put the green dots on the line of Bitcoin price where he was increasing his allocation. They were buying the entire way down on you know the last cycle. They 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 got in on the announcement at Bitcoin Conference 2021. And we're just adding to lots on dips, but you're buying into a market, like into the lows, but it's it's lower lows and lower highs. So what they're doing is like averaging down losers, average losers. Um, sorry to be so blunt. That's a, I think it's a Paul Tudor Jones saying. Um, and what they, what, how it actually played out in practice is they were like massively down and then they didn't increase their position into the bull market or into the like the bottom of the actual like cup and handle that's forming. They didn't have any buys after November 2022 as there were opportunities to, you know, increase your position size at a lower cost basis in a market that's now moving, like it's trending up. And the net result was like from their holding period of like let's say June, 2021 to December, 2023, they got outperformed by T-bills and so if you do that as a fund manager, and I forget which ticker symbol this fund was, Marty, if you get your timing wrong here, and these guys are starting from an allocation of zero, so all of the, everything from 15, 17K that we were at at the end of last year to where we are now at forty, forty five, yeah, we think there's more bull run ahead, but they're gonna be buying into the, let's say second and third bull waves of a you know traditional bull market. And so the risk is you're buying into the like a blow off top and then you're going to be down
4: and And a bunch of people will do that.
1: They will. And, and you're not in a seat like Naya Bukele. I think he's got his seat kind of locked up. Uh, But if you're one of these portfolio managers and you put up bad performance, like you're, you're going to get pulled off the, off the basketball court or off the field. And like, you're going to be out of a job. So you can be right on the right asset class with this, massive bull market over 15 years, but because the volatility and the candles are so big, like you can really shoot yourself in the foot here if if you don't know what you're doing.
4: Funny enough, more people, more portfolio managers will get burned by this, than will get promoted because of this. Uh, You know, the ones that add Bitcoin, um, the ability to add Bitcoin to their funds (laughs) because people are gonna buy the top because everybody's new to Bitcoin and everybody learns the hard way how this thing actually works um, and the sharpest and, you, and like, you become wise six years later when you have already yeah. deployed all, all your capital <laughs> yeah and the best in the business like and i'm not
1: that like paul tudor jones like he was allocating him like a long time ago like he's already front ran like the rest yeah. of our peer group in the position so now you're working into the lower like the middle of the stack and the bottom of the stack and this is where is where mistakes can get made.
4: Yeah. Well, 12 months from now is when real mistakes from now. are made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Right.
2: Well, which begs the question will these ETS be approved next week? And if so, how quickly will the capital flow into these assets in an attempt to take advantage of the gains that we think are ahead of us? Not investment advice.
4: Yeah, like Michael, my, you've been a big Continues to be uh yes, they'll be approved. Um I think it's like ninety-five percent chance. It, it, there's you gotta allow some possibility of like a back room uh you know, the uh lawmakers decide this is <laughs> mission critical to the dollar and they're gonna fight it um through some shady last minute measure. But I think barring that, it it goes through next next week. Uh and and it's a nothing burger, uh, for day one. Well, actually there, there will be volatility. It'll be like, a, you know, a, a doji candle or it'll go up and down on day one, it would be, would be my bet, a lot of volatility, but no real economic substance, um, because no major capital inflows. Um, and so the, you know, the price of Bitcoin won't sustainably be impacted. I think day one, week one, month one quarter one. But now that those channels are open for capital to flow into Bitcoin through those avenues, that's very real and will be cumulative over time. And will add to this, to the demand side, um, four months before the supply side of the equation gets cut in half. um, New supply issuance gets cut in half in April. And so I, you know, I think that the impact of the ETFs over the, the next 18 months will be very large in terms of amplifying um, price discovery to the upside because it will increase demand, uh, make, it, make it possible for a whole lot of capital to access Bitcoin uh, during the bull market. And so that'll amplify things to the upside. But I think that people need to be um, prepared for complete disappointment in the first month in terms of like, oh, ETF was approved. It didn't seem to matter at all. But it will matter in a cumulative basis.
3: Yeah, Matt, would love to hear kind of just what Marty started with and like how big do you think this is? Like in reality, there's a lot of takes and you know, buy the news, sell the news, buy, buy, you know, all the different. Yeah. I'm curious, like, what are your, you know, being in the markets and also being a bit, being involved in Bitcoin, I feel like you have the best lens of like how big this actually is with all the institutions going to be marketing dollars. Yeah.
1: Okay so uh, just first point like the the event like the sell is it a sell the news talk to like a lot of trader types will kind of pitch that which that's fine like a, as a long-term holder into this allocation i think you actually you want that right we haven't had any retracement in in three months like it, and it's it's pretty that's a pretty long period um you know across bitcoin's history and and so like yeah it'd be, it'd be great if you know the first let's say four weeks like it announces it feels like a nothing burger and we get some drawdown that would be fantastic uh i think it's actually needed a healthy uh 20 retracement you know what yeah you know, hopefully not a 50 but let's just see something like that happen if it does materialize that way great but i think the case study like that to look at on what this means for opening up a public fund um that's you know the it's the closest thing you can get to a UTXO alloc- allocation in in an exchange traded fund type of vehicle. So now that, that that's opened up, yeah, this is better than what the markets had before for what is in all intents and purposes like an inferior product. To actually owning the UTXOs yourself and like holding the keys. And we know that uh, everybody on this call, if you're listening to the last trade and you're you're looking for on ramp solution for um you know, working towards that, that, that end, end game, but you need some hand holding up for uh, up front too. It's like, all right, you, you have those type of investors who realize a lot of the benefits of, of a global censorship resistant, you know, transparent immutable public ledger money. Like that's what you need. Um, but for a lot of people, they don't realize it. They just need something that's going to be a store value for their, Wealth accumulation over their lifetime, whatnot, and it needs to be in their portfolio somehow. So they're going to go the easy route, uh, whatever it means. Like it's just going to happen. Um, is this big? I think it's actually massive. I don't know. I don't want to put numbers on it. Like you've had, um, you know, other podcasts where like they put out a price target. Like who, irrelevant. Um, case study: This Invesco Pro ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF. It launched in October. 2021 basically top ticked the the like the second wave of the the last bull cycle this bito ticker symbol if you actually look what's going on there in that adoption you've seen all right it it underperforms bitcoin by i think it's underperformed by six percent so you have a fee drag like it charges 95 bit so it's a pretty heavy cost like from an expense ratio standpoint across other uh, fun category. Like it's, it's peer group, whatnot. Um, and then you've also got the drag. It's not buy and hold UTXOs where you just park them and, you know, very little overhead. They're buying Bitcoin futures, which you constantly have to roll. And the, the drag from that is you've got to actually roll over as your future is coming up on maturity. You don't want to actually hold it to cash settlement. Usually what you do is you'll sell out of it and then extend out and you'll roll it into, let's say a, a longer term future. And then you just have to con- constantly water your garden there. That trade will typically cost you money in terms of drag, just because when you roll in and buy the long, like there's usually a price gap there on um, like the, the 12 month that you're rolling into is going to be priced higher than than the front end. And then, the, and then that's even after like... I think up to like 50 percent of that fund's allocation is put into t-bills because you had to post those as collateral to leverage up and buy the futures so even with t-bill rates at multi-decade highs like i think it's going back to like 2007 i think since you've you know that type of era pre-gfc where you've seen front end rates hit the levels they are now they're still underperforming by six percent so it's an inferior product if you will the only thing this bito fund has going for it is it's it's an exchange traded liquid vehicle that like retail customers with their assets parked in a broker deal dealer can allocate into a uh bitcoin exposure like everybody on this call would probably say like yeah it's kind of bitcoin you're referencing the bitcoin price but it's not bitcoin it's not actual utxo exposure all that aside if you look at share count for this fund through the bear market it's increased two x it's doubled like they they seeded it with a billion dollars market cap is up to one point seven three billion and that's after price return is dragging that down forty percent. It's two x the capital inflows in a bear market so this e t f is telling you if you build it and this is like a terrible product in my opinion people in like they're going to allocate in so then what happens now if instead of futures and fifty percent treasuries, what happens now if you have that same value prop and now you've got utxos and to, to to believe that it's gonna be like a nothing burger over the longer term like let's say it's four weeks it plays out as jesse kind of envisioned there and it doesn't happen right away and it actually the market moves the opposite of the way you'd expect like it's it's a retracement we're down um i don't think the fundamentals when you look at the case studies of, of these other etfs that are out there like you're going to get capital allocation in And the other thing is, like, I can't remember when they launched the short version. So the BITO goes long futures. They launched another fund, BITI, B-I-T-I, that is short the futures. It's like this is for people who want to short Bitcoin. It did not attract share count creation, like capital's not flowing into it in a bear market where that one would have actually been up. They they um, I think they actually got it out the gate after most of the drawdowns and Bitcoin was actually done like it didn't launch until like end of your last year roughly right so they like it's been bitcoin's been in a bull like it's been up uh trending since so the the inverse like the interest in going short bitcoin wasn't there so i think it's it's pointing out this sign that there is a lot of demand that wants to come in through this channel that wants to allocate in and be long bitcoin exposure
3: yeah i don't think anybody's bullish enough other than maybe like uh, other other than maybe caps caps uh, Caps odell who's back uh yeah i I don't think i think this is like the the chef's kiss on both sides of the market where you get fidelity blackrock and everybody under the sun that looks as their lord and savior kissing and saying this is the thing everybody's been scared they've been thought it's for drug dealers and all all the things associated with it and then you get the other chef's kiss which is oh, and you buy this in the way that you're used to buying it. You don't have to go and send the wire to Coinbase. You don't have to do all of these things. It's like, what else? And if that yeah. is to be true, what ends up happening is the thing that we've all talked about is you don't need global adoption. You need one, two, 3% of market penetration and the reflexivity of the asset does the rest. And now we're just off to the races and that's effectively what's, what's gonna happen. So I think it's buy the news, buy the Bitcoin, buy everything. Like it's it's it only goes
1: one direction. The fund management industry loves this like if you look at all the ETFs out there i don't know how many there are like i did i did some analysis Let's say there's 2000 like if you try, if you segment them out by what they actually invest in like you have equity ETFs you have fixed income ETFs then you have like the other most of it is equity and fixed income ETFs like if you look at the iShares suite it's like we have uh, LQD corporate bonds. We have an emerging market bonds. We have mortgage bank. Like you, they, they slice and dice the entire pie up and it's, it's pretty much all saturated for like the segmentation, like fixed income. Like there's a couple of firms who's trying to do it a little bit more granular. They're like, all right, now we'll go corporate. We'll do the slice and dicing based on rating. So this is the double A, one to three year us ig corporate bond you know market or maybe they'll split it up like there's financials and there's non-financials like they're trying to micro segment even more there but for all intents and purposes like the equity slices like large cap mid cap small cap emerging markets domestic europe like it's all been sliced and diced enough like it's pretty much maxed out um there's no like and and the industry you need gold-plated records right you're looking for hits on the wall for oh yeah, what does it say? 8,000, like that's worldwide. Yeah, so if you look at like New York Stock Exchange, like the US, like it's some fraction of that, but it, within equity and fixed income, there's honestly too many, like we're beyond market saturation and equity and fixed income. So the ability to create more gold records, like a billion, you need billion dollar AUM products um, that are like, that's a, that's a really profitable uh, investment product for the financial services industry equity and fixed income are tapped out and then you get into like the alternatives, the multi-assets, those are hard, right? It, it's really hard to go into like a distribution pipeline and say like, you need to like come by our 60-40 I right? It's like, there's already a bunch of those too. Um, and then you're like commodity funds. You've seen like go to the CBOE or CME and you look at every futures contract You've seen those put into ETFs now too. You can go get gasoline, like as a retail investor, you got, like, I need to buy like UGA, Gasoline Futures. I need the oil fund, like the US, like they've already done this. Like it's it's already just like covered ground. Like it, it's already saturated. But then the, the rare bird that stands out in terms of AUM growth, the, what broke through and is generating a massive amount of revenue, has been the GBTC. Like this, this over the counter or this weird, you know, like pink sheet was started out as turned into this massive hit product, cash cow. And there is nothing else that looks like it in the data sample from like the economics perspective of of, uh, like a fund. So, what they see here, like there's only what 13 asset managers who've gone out of like 50, 100 that have scale and matter. So the penetration of those that see it and want to make this play, it's not even fully kind of baked in that all of them are going for it once. But at this point, like 13 of them are. Um, so they see the economics that hit product. And this is where there's too much money to be made. Uh, you, you, you've got the Wall Street players who are now going to be communicating to regulators and you know, Washington, D.C. Like, I want to see this happen because we could make a lot of money.
3: Yeah, and that's actually a great call because that's on the institutional level. There's the RIA side as well when Matt references like tapped out on flows is like the goal of RIAs is to bring in assets back into, you know, their clients that they're managing, bringing more and more capital. So they'll bring new funds, new products to the clients and, hey, are you interested? And the idea is not to move over assets from existing positions within the portfolio that they're managing, but to bring net new assets, selling that property, selling you know, whatever that sits outside of the RA's purview, and now you have this like fund, whether it's the et the BlackRock ETF Fidelity's where you can basically say, hey, now you can pull in net new assets. And then once it starts to be recognized that this thing actually juices your AUM and overall percentage you can bill on, that's a whole other side of liquidity from individual high net worth investors um, that will get plugged into this. And, and RA's haven't been incentivized to do this because there hasn't been any kind of product that they can actually feel good about let alone, you know, get that 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 chef's kiss again. Um, so yeah, I think there's just no shortage of little pockets of cap or large pockets of capital that start to feed into this uh, as this thing gets announced.
2: Sorry, saying that Suzu is just two years too early? The super cycle is upon us.
3: Wait, wait. Marty, how how do you feel about the ETF?
2: Uh I'll take the contrarian view and Jesse reference it. I would not be surprised if the treasury department comes out Sunday night with an emergency statement that Bitcoin is a systemic risk to our national security and financial system.
3: Max Kaiser I, just tweeted that. Did you see did that? It? I he, tweeted it out last night.
2: It was tongue in cheek. He just
3: tweeted something similar about basically saying um, ETF is going to be de- – I don't even know how true this is. It's just what a tweet came up. It was like a delay because of self-custody rules or whatever.
2: I would not be surprised. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's like 95% chance that it gets approved, but um, – the mental preparation I'm going through right now is preparing for some disappointment, um, <laughs> come late Sunday night, yeah. a, a ninja launch of a well, treasury statement.
3: For the audience, just to like, you know, it's like Marty and Jesse have been around in this space for, for a very long time. And what, what you do when you've been around long, you, you basically hedge your, your, uh, excitement and all the things. So that is where they're coming from. And and I was going to share that and then Marty s- saved it for me. He's like, well, you know, I'm just parrying my excitement. The, the, uh, you know, you always want to be prepared for the downside because this happened and basically to everyone here uh, and probably a lot of people listening. 2021, 2022, we thought this thing was doing, you know, crazy numbers. And I think we were just a, like, to your point about Susie, I think we were a little early. It was just a little like, you know, Wall Street said, no, nah, no, nah, we got to we gotta wipe the floor with you guys and, uh, you know, get our, our spots set up first before we can let this thing really run. And I think that's what effectively happened in the past 18 months. And uh, now we're, we're on the precipice of go time.
2: Yeah, I think there may. Oh God, I was gonna say, if I'm being, like I, I think we'll see go time, but you, like you mentioned, if you've been around the block. <laughs> so wait, which is it? Is it a big deal I, or not? <laughs> I, I think it's obviously a big deal. I mean, I think, um like Matt said many times, like you should. It's much easier to get direct exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, maybe it's not easier, but I think it's worthwhile, and that's it's what you like should that. do.
4: The longer you've been in Bitcoin, the harder it is to get excited about this. Marty's been around longer than me; he's he's less excited than I am. But then you go full
3: circle, like Matt's ten years, and then you just go insane at the back. Yeah, now he's just ready; he's ready for. (laughs) That's that's the
2: goal: is to not go insane and um, tempering expectations is a good way to do that um, to prevent that insanity from.
4: Uh, At at the end of the day, the. After ten years of of every ETF filing being denied uh, and everybody like losing faith that it would ever happen, it, it really does appear to be a week away now. Yeah, a, a, and a
1: retracement would be nice and healthy um, for Bitcoin yeah. over the long term. Um, I think like this whatever executive order or whatever the Sunday night uh, scenario. At the end of the day, you're looking at a sovereign. balance sheet of treasury (laughs) like it's it we need answers uh like to the to the problem that we're in like the the fiscal position of the united states like it's you know hopefully we're not past the rubicon at this point we may be um but you know where i'm going out here treasury needs wall street's help like treasury needs capital markets help at the end of the day to finance itself to keep society running to keep the goods and services flowing like to keep to, to keep the, you know, the country running, uh, if you will. So you're looking for solutions and ultimately like, you can't just, you could try this, but just hammer, hammer it down by edict, Like you're not doing this. But at the end of the day, the economics need to need to prevail. Like capital markets, that's, that's what it's all about. It's resources, finding their highest and best use efficiency, et cetera. And, uh, if you don't follow those signals and where, where, you know returns happen like ultimately like you're just gonna run into a problem you know, like continue the direction of where this problem is leading this where we're just eating our seed corn going deeper and deeper into debt um and the whole thing won't work so that you got to play along if you're washington dc if you're wall street if you're london like whoever like you just at the end of the day if this thing works you're gonna need to align and, and come on board and i think with the big name like the the big players in the industry like you're seeing that like we talked about when i was on in last june like these signals you were saying like the key personnel from like citadel or had like just big name hedge funds like Bre- Brevin howard setting up the market making uh desks in u.s and in england etc like edx and elwood technologies so the signs were there that the capital players, like, they wanted to go here because at the end of the day, they need growth. Like, their income statements, their balance sheets, they have to work too. Otherwise, if their balance sheets aren't healthy, like, Treasury's fiscal position is not going to get any better. Um, so at the end of the day, like, everybody's going to respond to incentives, like, once they come around. And, you know, a lot of times we take these veered paths that, you know, run straight on to a, you know, run, run our heads into a brick wall. It's like, oh, well, that didn't work. But you got to... You gotta find actual solutions that that work so yeah even if it's a sunday night um you know edict whatnot coming down like over the long term it's like you gotta you just, just gotta flow with where the water's going and yeah you, got, you gotta fix the problem yeah, yeah.
3: and they're and i mean these, they're smart like we we talked about it before the show started the hong kong etf uh and close to approval there and then we see what's happening in the middle east region and like dubai and like the capital is going to flow to matt's point in one in a direction whether it's approved here or somewhere else um so there's game theory behind a lot of this as well where this is going to get approved
2: yeah and the i mean the incitement for me to send that tweet out to mention it here today with kim parker you know i got lunch yesterday i was asking his opinions and if you just juxtapose the imminent approval with everything the treasury elizabeth warren the bank executives have said over the last few months like it just doesn't um just doesn't align and i completely agree like if these people were smart they would let the capital flow to where it wants to go but i think this administration particularly has proven that they're not too wise and that's why i put at least a five percent chance on a ninja treasury statement at some point over the weekend to try to stomp this out i don't i think it's unlikely um but i I do think it's a over zero probability. And just to highlight the numbers that you were alluding to, Matt, I think I've about this last night in the bent trying to put, we should mention yesterday was January 3rd, 2024 uh, 15th anniversary of the Genesis block being mined. So we're 15 years into Bitcoin. I took the opportunity to put this 15 years into perspective, particularly from the U S monetary base and federal debt situation. If you, zoom down logan right below this chart um the the next chart like this paragraph here it's actually pretty crazy if you go down a little bit um if you look at the ratios of like m2 to federal debt over the 15 years that bitcoin has existed so in january 2009 the ratio of national debt to the m2 money stock was 1.29 so 10.7 trillion dollars in debt to 8.3 trillion in m2 Today that ratio has ballooned to 1.63, 34 trillion debt to 20.8 trillion in M2. And as our friend Parker Lewis likes to say, there simply is too much debt and not enough dollars to service that debt. And this is becoming clear and clear by the day. Um, Go down. There was like this is like the astonishing set to me. Uh, Or go up between the two charts. I think I put it in. Let me see. I'm Sorry. Yeah. So put another way 68% of the debt that this country has accrued over the last 248 years was added over the last 15 years, or 6% of the country's lifetime. Like that's mind boggling. It took 233 years to go from zero to 10 trillion. It's taken 15, 10.7 trillion, taken 15 years to go from 10.7 to 34.1 where we stand today. Is that 68% of the debt that the United States has accrued? since we declared our independence in 1776 has been accrued in the last 15 years since
3: bitcoin launched i was going to ask um about the you referenced some of the like um politicians and jamie diamond came to mind about like some of the the comments he made and then finding out they're an authorized participant um matt i'd be curious like because this is like a twofer i know we've gone pretty long explaining or sharing what do you think is going on with like a Jamie diamond and saying, like talking out two sides of, of his mouth effectively. Um, but then also kind of going into the minutia of like the cash creates and like what they, where the authorized participants sit and how these ETFs are going to like work in practice. Cause I think that's been a big topic. And I think all of the ETFs that are going to be approved are all cash creates or redeems. Um, and just walking through that, I think would be, be helpful, um, for us, but also the, the listeners.
2: Matt is still here. Is. He's just checking, checking a text message.
3: Oh, okay. And we Unless lost Jesse. Strong. We'll Unless use this.
2: Die. We'll use this opportunity. No, cause he's still on the stream. Oh, okay. We, we'll use this opportunity to, uh, to let you guys know that Jesse just Irish exited on us. He had to leave to, uh, to take on other obligations, but we're still here and Matt is
1: back. Did, uh, Am I back? Good. Yeah, no, a, a call just came in. I had a red button it, but then yeah, the the app. <laughs> uh, it was hard to get audio back on. Can you guys hear me? Yes, yep. Sir. Okay. Um so yeah, d- uh, Chase coming in as a as an authorized participant. There's not all that much business impact there. I mean, it's just like the the ability to create or like increase or decrease share count on the ledger, and a lot of parties can do that. Um what that effectively means is like how how the structure of the ETF actually plays out. So you have the share count, right, and the way that like the the retail investor or like you know the brokerage customers will allocate into shares, they'll just buy and sell through their through their brokerage. Um, one of the key things, like that's going to differentiate the thirteen ETFs, is going to be liquidity. Like they need to get their bid ask spreads down to a penny, and that'll that'll be an early signal on who's. Which of these thirteen firms are, are winning, right? Because they're not all going to be winners, like in a in a in an industry or a, a kind of like niche where they're not competing on anything other than expense ratio and you know maybe liquidity. Um, you know, under the hood, you could be looking at it as like which ones are rehypothecating, which ones are not. But that won't be apparent to investors on day one. They won't. They probably won't be thinking about that. It'll just be those two uh, up in front. Uh, Features, if you will. Um, AUM too. Like the, you won't allocate into a fund that's only got 10 million, 50 million, 100 million in it. One with like on its market cap. That's where size begets more size. So I'd say the, those three dynamics will be like the primary. If you're going to allocate in, that'll be your choice on who you buy from. Or it might be you also have a, an existing relationship with, uh, like let's say BlackRock, your pension plan, you you like, BlackRock is kind of your consultant or advisor on your multi-asset allocation. If they come in and recommend to your investment committee or your board, it's like, hey, buy this, buy our iBit ETF, right, um, for your Bitcoin allocation. That will steer in uh, clients from there. But uh, how do you get there, right? To outcompete the other 12 offerings, or, you know, it could be more as other firms realize it's like, oh, hey, BlackRock's having success. If I'm Vanguard, you know, I can claim, you know, and stick by my, my kind of logic on my master that, like, we're value investors, or our thesis is you just own the market, how to play, it, and that's it. Um, we're not going to go in. Well, there's going to be business that you're losing and giving up because of that. So it will, it will come into play. Um, but as far as like the cash creates go, um, they're all going to be, or, or sorry, they're all going to be cash settled for create redeems. Uh, there's not going to be any in kind redemptions. The prospectus for, for BlackRock now reads, it says we may, if they can obtain regulatory approval, add on, um, in kind creation redemptions in the future, but that's off the table for now so what does that actually like amount to at the end of the day like if you had had in kind cash creates and you're an authorized participant what you could do is trade bitcoin for shares and that opens up another arbitrage route for you as a capital markets desk what do i mean by that let's say the the share price of um ibit shares or whatever etf is above the nav like you're still going to be able to arbitrage that that out like you see that with every etf these mar- like the market makers and ap's they're always trying to to whittle away the arbitrage between the the underlying assets and like let's say the number of like the utxo count per share and then the market price of that like they will still engage in those shares or in in that level of arbitrage but there won't be the ability like if you're chase you're involved with markets across the world like every asset class not just equity fixed income like at this point you're in commodities markets like there you've seen headlines in 2023 about how um jp morgan got spoofed on a nickel delivery and i think it was europe and there's just like rocks in the uh in in the on the pallets or packed in the pallets on the delivery on the delivery that were supposed on physical settle that were supposed to be nickel but it turns out like yeah you got hoodwinked um but in that Landscape, your capital markets desk is, can try to arbitrage. Like, if you think about it for, through Bitcoin, what is the cheapest way to, to pr- acquire a UTXO? Like, traditionally so far, it's been you use stranded energy, right? You set up a mining operation, you mine Bitcoin, and you find the lowest cost to, to, to produce, you know, one Bitcoin, whatnot. Um, and, and you sell that in the market and that's your profit margin as a producer. Now, if you had had in-kind creation redemption, what you could do is set up a series of arbitrage trades, like down to verticalizing, like down to the studs, the energy resource and the ASICs and and the foreign exchange cross-border capital, where you could arbitrage like all the way down the value chain and, and, and get all of the profit from you know, basically zero up to spot price of, of UTXOs. Um, the, the reason to like the demand coming in, the inflows, like the bid for for these Bitcoin ETFs, that enables that as well. So the capital, the more capital you get on the demand side coming in through that route, the better off you'll be um, in terms of being able to capture as much of that spread between your ability to produce the, the raw commodity and that price you can sell it at. That's not going to happen right now. Like that's not getting approved. And the reason is like the regulators see like the, the that whole market is not ready. Right. Um, like when you look at energy cross-border cap, like cross-border commodity trade, like it's still as much as capital markets have kind of progressed over this 40 year bull market era in our lifetimes, like we're in the most financialized uh, economy that's probably ever existed. Um, there's still a lot of just cut corners, you know, booby traps that can get you in the commodities trade, you know, those type of trades that even, you know, materialize in like the biggest financial institution in the world, JPMorgan Chase, can get hoodwinked on on a commodity trade. So it's like it's clearly not there where we can, um, where, where regulators see that they can put that whole kind of, uh, or open up that whole mechanism where you're not just going to get some sort of just I don't know what else to call it, like other than like just breakdown malfeasance, whatnot. Uh, so they, they kind of realize they can't police it and they can't ensure integrity, like if they open up that route. So at this point, what's the next best thing? Like, okay, we're just going to do the settlement, uh, cash settlement. What that actually kind of boils down to, the APs are just, they're, they're cash processors. They don't actually ever touch Bitcoin, right? They're just taking in shares, and they'll either kind of uh, put them to the portfolio manager or the, it's actually like the fund administrator or like they call it the transfer agent who will adjust the share count and they're just settling, settling cash. Um, where it actually comes into play, it, what it actually means is the, the portfolio manager behind these funds is the only ones who's going to be making the actual Bitcoin to dollar transactions. And it means like, basically, they're, they're not an active player. They're, they're not timing price. They can't go out and just post bids and wait for the liquidity to come to them. Can't just post offers, wait for the liquidity to come that way, you know, both ways. Um, they've got to, every time they buy and sell, they're going to have to cross the bid ask, like they're going to have to hit the bids, lift the offers. Uh, they're just completely passive players. Um, so. Where the value actually flows in this case is to the spot market makers uh, in UTXOs and dollars. And that's where these headlines we were talking about last June with all of these key personnel. It's like, wow, they they opened up these market making desks in, in uh, Bitcoin and they, they're they also altcoining coining or, you know, I don't want to use four letter words and call them what they are. Um, they're also going to do that. But the Bitcoin USD market is is... Where the interest is, and and tying that down, and while all of the headlines, like everybody was following ETFs, 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 I think we were missing the kind of the forest for the trees on what was really going on. The capital markets desks were moving into market making on Bitcoin UTXOs and, and dollars. So that's that's the that's the big deal. I think the the elephant in the room is. I mean, it, it's it's ultimately good. Like you're going to have more liquidity in the Bitcoin markets, more capital flowing in. But it, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's changing. Like, you're getting the the professionals involved in market making and, and Bitcoin, uh, which is, you know, think about, this is where it needed to go. Like, we had, um, you know, you can say Binance, CZ. Like, they were, you know, Marty on uh, RHR, you, you and Matt have talked about, like, CZ is kind of a different breed than the FTI. Like, he's been a Bitcoiner, or he's been in the space longer, um, still made a lot of, like, short-term decisions to go after you know the altcoins all that dumping on retail um but uh you saw the real kind of fly by nights come in i'd say like the between the 2017 cycle and the 2020 cycle where you saw like ftx show up out of nowhere that's all been pulled away i think and you've seen like the big players now are going to enter um the the market making space so i think that's the that's the key tie-in, I think, of what, what's really happened or like the, the main uh, crux of it that I think a lot of us are missing. It's the, the maturation, if you will, or the absorption into legacy capital markets of, of the, the Bitcoin market making. And then also, I think the other element, we talked about this before, is like, where do the Bitcoin actually domicile and find their home? And I think the, the nation states now have realized, you know, we know at least some El Salvador, Bhutan, Oman, etc., have disclosed publicly and made decisions that they're acquiring and holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets. But uh, this is a, a play, uh, I believe, without saying it out loud, that uh, US capital markets are realizing the importance of having those UTXOs, the Bitcoin, custodied and domiciled within, within the United States. Um, so because it's cash settled, the bitcoin can't be arbitraged like you cannot construct the trades to arbitrage you know what we talked about it, um if you wanted to let uh bitcoin create redeems come in kind where those bitcoin could just leave um and and leave the country if they if they wanted to now they're kind of they're contained they're domiciled they're being they're going to be custodied i believe with bitcoin, uh, with uh coinbase i think uh, if i have yep. that right correct me if i'm wrong and then, um, you know, from there, it's, it's kind of a, a roach motel is the way this is set up. Um, the Bitcoin aren't going to leave. When there's a sell order, dollars go out the door. Um, the actual Bitcoin that the portfolio manager at BlackRock or, you know, Franklin Templeton or Invesco, whoever, they're going to sell the Bitcoin into the spot market and then it's gonna li- live on the balance sheets of whoever their counterparties are, which is also US entities. So it really is a kind of compartmentalization of the of the capital stock, you know, in, in my opinion. And and I think the, the kind of elephant in the room, the last time we went through this, like, I mean, 1970s, it was all about, where's the gold gonna go? Like we shut down Bretton Woods in 1971 because too much gold was leaving the country. We closed the exit doors. It's the same thing in the Great Depression, 1933 executive order 6102, Um, private individuals can't hold gold, it's going to be all kind of mapped in, the army's going to defend it at Fort Knox. Um, I think we are realizing as we go through these big transitions in the global monetary system, um, the signal you're looking for is uh, the nation states are going to be looking to ensure that the capital doesn't flee their country, and first thing is make sure, m- shut the barn door and make sure, you know, more of your cows and horses don't get out. And I think the next move, if you want to do this well, is to attract more capital in. So this idea that you come in and shoot yourself in the foot and and treasury issues an order, like you can't do this. This is, this is, um, this is a threat to the, this is the threat to the, <laughs> the fiscal position of the United States. I think it's it's probably the exact opposite if you do not attract capital and or or you, know, you can contain it but you don't want to make it too heavy-handed because if you if you if you make it clear that you're exist like you're uh, implementing capital controls that's a sign it's gonna be taken as a, a dog whistle you're gonna be like i need to get this out i need to get my gold out of nazi germany i need to get my gold out of japan Whatnot. not as an individual is what you'd probably be thinking in those countries the way to do it well, if you're thinking for the long term, you want your, I think, you want your nation, state, your, your society to prosper. Is you've got to attract it in. So I think this is a key moment to to get it right. Um, we'll we'll see uh, with the with the decisions made ahead. But yeah, that's the just a little bit of thoughts on the uh, the cash settlement. I think it is a big deal. It's, you know, there's a there's there's reasoning behind it, and it's uh, big things are at play. That was a lot of things.
2: Wasn't it... <laughs> the Well, now that's made me think we're thinking these people are playing 4D chess. Maybe all the posturing by the Treasury and uh, Elizabeth Warren and Jamie Dimon has been a misdirection play towards international markets. Like, uh, no, we don't want it here.
1: So to say they're playing 4D chess and like you're just in a massive, like you've gotten yourself in a really bad fiscal decisions with like, especially like the decisions made after the like the 1998 kind of global southeast asian debt crisis is where this kicked off like we've just been putting ourselves more and more in a bad position ever since you don't give up your queen on like move 4 or like just like trade like rooks for pawns and like everybody's doing that but like to claim like you've been playing the long play all along it's like i don't i don't know like if i were i'm not a chess grandmaster or anything it's like you doesn't make sense to to make those moves and put yourself in in this kind of position like this far behind if you will in the, in the debt situation if you were really trying to play well like 40 chess analogy
3: Yeah, the, the thing that came to mind when matt was talking about the, like uh, it's like basically geopolitical capital silos and uh the Hong Kong reversal. Remember like they took a hard stance on the crypto and the banks last year. And then that like randomly kind of pivoted post, uh, ETF approved, like when this chatter started, um, you could if, if this like thesis plays out, you can start seeing these like markets, whether it's India, uh, Asia Pacific, Hong Kong, we have seen it going on in the middle East where you start developing these like financial products and you start to bring in the capital flows. Uh, specifically Bitcoin into these vehicles versus yes. other offshore vehicles.
1: But just pause and just reflect right now, like Marty, your 15 year piece. Isn't it just mind boggling that this is where we are right now? Like <laughs> this thing that started with one guy and start like two nodes with Hal Finney and it's like it's gone here. It's like this it tells you something like huh, people are aligning about around it or the biggest entities in the world our nation states are now kind of having to address and and come to deal come to terms with aligning around this consensus mechanism is is what's actually going on it's pretty it's beautiful it's, it's pretty it, crazy it,
3: and doesn't it make it feel like a uh, 21 million really isn't a large number
1: <laughs> you know <laughs> no. it's just the, the number is arbitrary it could have been two like we'd fractional and we like it'd be sliced up we'd call the unit of account like sats or you know whatever but yeah just got to pick a number
2: there's only going to be 21 million freaks if you're listening out there
1: it's going to be a lot of people trying to get
2: their slice of the 21 million after next week this has been we're two hours in now this has been incredible all right this is i like this new format michael are you uh, uh, p- uh, pleased with the format
3: i love it i think um i think there's a lot of things that bitcoin will touch and and, and individuals want to hear how it touches it like the ai thing i think was great i think we probably just gotta people i don't think we or individuals have two and a half hours to spend on on pods with all the ones coming out so we'll we'll get better on the the timing but I, yeah i love um, being able to talk to about some of the other stuff that tie into bitcoin
2: yeah, Well, will have to work on the timing. Jesse's a very busy man. He only has an hour and a half for us each
3: Jesse week. Irish exit. Uh yeah. He, he, Matt, that's Matt, he ghosted Matt. us. Yeah.
2: He go he ghosted us before we ghost the audience. Gentlemen, any parting thoughts, parting notes, things we didn't cover that you think we should touch on before we wrap up.
3: Matt, do you feel comfortable um I don't want to do the price, but like, wh- give me, give me something, give us something on like where, how big this cycle goes. Like, how, like, how should we think about it as compared to? I don't want
2: I don't want you to mention price, but like, how high do you think it goes? <laughs> it, it, maybe it's less uh, about
3: price; it's more about just like adoption, right? We had, you know, sailor last year. We had El Salvador. Like, where do we see this entrench into, like, you know, global like culture, all the things in this next
1: wave. I don't know. I haven't really put too much time into coming up with a price target. I'm more just kind of, I try to watch flows and kind of the the waves, if you will. Like it, it's more than it is today, obviously top of cycle. Um, I think the last one, interestingly, um, you know, people talk talk about the top of the last cycle. This is a weird one because there was the double top element. Um, The first peak came, it was like right as that China ban was coming, right? Which was... uh, Martin, you might know 21. timelines, but June of 21, that was the first peak and that was really what you would call like the technical peak of the cycle. And from there, we were in, I, my opinion, we were in the big retrace. Now you got the rally from, I forget how how low it dipped in that intermediate from like 60K the first time and then it hit it again. Like it went down to maybe like 40, 30, I don't know, somewhere in there. But that next rally from like 30 to 40K back up to like a new all time high, high at 65K my perspective on like what was actually going on in the capital flows of market etc what two things one the money printing and the fiscal stimulus was so strong in covid like the embers just wouldn't burn out on that process like we're still dealing with that um so that gave a massive like a continued tailwind but then i think you're also looking for in terms of that like the 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 Rally, right? The bear market rally, which, was, in my opinion, was that second wave of the double top. That really, the the top tick of that market was the launch of that BITO ETF product, and then capital flowed in. We talk about how it's an inferior vehicle, it's inferior product, but capital flowed in. Share counts up two x over the two years or so it's existed. That tells you. It tells me, and my read on this, like this underlying bull market, like that only happens where you have, uh like uh, that that bear market rally that can overshoot that top if the underlying bull market is like extremely strong. So I think that's that's what I look to for signal, and it's it's pretty dang obvious. Like the longer you've been here paying attention, like there's there's something going on in Bitcoin. It seems to be there's a a pretty massive bull market going on over the last 15 years you know what we've seen so far every cycle peak is considerably higher um than the previous you know cycle top so no idea where we get to in the blow off or or in the, the final phase i don't know you know how this bull market cycle ends like we won't know it until it materializes like no one saw the The China ban coming like in real time unless you had some sort of like inside information and you knew they were working on implementing it like the market was picking up those signals but you didn't know what the headline was that would chop it off right same thing with the etf launch you might have had a sense that that product was coming out the filings we weren't watching it to the same degree that you know the the twitterati or whatever the x audience has just they're just on these ETF launches like there's nothing else going like they're putting so much attention into that but it wasn't that way for the for the Bito ETF when it launched so like that whole point like the underlying sentiment of how people are going to behave I have no idea what they drive price to this next cycle but I the the actual waves like underneath this thing like there is a lot of energy behind this thing so who, who knows like where it goes to um and I, I think if if you're in it for the long trade like the long term and you're using this as your store of value it doesn't so much matter like don't let the don't let the highs push you to like you know past your emotional peak or you know, don't let the lows you know stop you out it's parting thoughts tsunami <laughs> that's what i heard <laughs> hey props uh I know Japan had that earthquake it's no it's no no joking matter those are dangerous yes, I mean I was trying to throw a little joke out there hearts I, I know, know hearts out to Japan dealing with that, yeah. uh, that crisis <laughs> I japan Indonesia like, yeah,
2: not trying to be uh <laughs> not trying to denigrate the impact that actual tsunamis had. It's not a good thing <laughs> Bro, you gotta stuff. be careful
3: you gotta be careful out there <laughs>
2: <laughs> with that michael anything
3: uh no it's it's awesome matt i appreciate you jumping on i think your uh, analysis is great i think we probably get muted volatility the downside based on long-term holders and retirement accounts where it's not like people just selling out um that'd be a quasi prediction versus the crazy 80 percent retraces we've seen previously yeah
2: yeah, and if the boomers' retirement accounts allocate the Bitcoin, then they unfortunately pass and pass it along to their millennial kids. Or millennial kids are like, all right, double down on this, buy some more of this.
1: Of Here's this. a great point I heard a non Bitcoiner make uh, on a podcast last night. Um, talked about sentiment. Like the last time Bitcoin was at 40K, people were a billion. And this was like <laughs> on the way down, like Bitcoin Conference 2022. We didn't realize the depths of what was ahead of us, like all of these uh lending failures so celsius block ftx etc um and now that you know bitcoin's back at you know 40k but sentiment's not where it was like i know within this call like these individuals and then you talk to bitcoiners at the at the conferences like they're incredibly high sentiment like their convictions were just like steeled with uh, the banking crisis or uh, like what happened with svb whatnot and like just just reinforced um all of their core convictions, but if you just talk to the general public right now, Bitcoin's not at an all-time high. There's much lower sentiment um, than there was the last time we were at 40k. So I think that tells you, like, just understanding where you're at in the in the big picture of this of of this current cycle, um, where we are, and uh, no idea how this one ends. They're all kind of different, um, but uh, tells you yeah keep keep riding the trade yeah yeah i think the flows not to
3: go to but the flows barney like we've been looking at this for so long i think we forget that like sending money into bitcoin is like sending into a casino from like a market perspective like you have to sell from one place you have to get the cash and then you're moving it to coinbase or a kraken like what is a coinbase or a kraken to the general audience like you might as well be sending into bovada or wherever to gamble and this idea that like, if somebody even wanted to trade, it requires a lot of work. It's like, huh, oh, let me just wait till the ETF from a retail perspective. And then from an institutional perspective, they can't do it either way. So like the idea that this thing launches and then it just kind of like, hangs out there for a little bit. What we were talking about earlier is I just don't see it because it just feels like it's the product that needs to be in the market for the flow to
1: actually start to move. That's well, a great point actually. Um, glad you raised it. Cause like a lot of the firms who've popped up who have been Bitcoin focused, Bitcoin only like, you know, the unchains of the world, whatnot, like they were not going the altcoin route and shilling Doge to your email list. Like you were giving up money, like you were choosing to forego like the the marshmallow on the table so you could get more later. But I think, you know, just opinion here, but like that long-term decision making over the last five, seven years, um yeah, like the most, you know, 55, six year olds, like the broader population, as you work your way up that S curve of adoption, you're trying to break through more than the, let's say one to 3% of people who've adopted Bitcoin at this point. If you wanna get the next 10, 20, I'm sorry, like, like my mom's not gonna go, like she doesn't wanna view this as a casino. She doesn't go to casinos. Like she, that's not what, what works for that person. And so, you know, the, the financial institutions, the service providers like that who are just focused on Bitcoin only, I think that becomes an asset in this as opposed to foregoing the marshmallow You know, the, in the last cycle and the cycle is before, basically since Ethereum you know, showed up. Um, it's been, well, I, I guess you had Litecoin even before that and, and stuff like that. But there was always that element of, uh, as Michael mentioned, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to sell my my holdings and whatever I was storing value in before, and I'm going to move that to the casino. They're like no, no. If you're looking for broader adoption, like the people aren't going to do that. So I think that's if we're making hot takes for 2024. I think that's it's when the the firms and entities who uh, successfully pass the marshmallow test and prior cycles. I hope, I, I think this cycle ahead is uh, where they can get rewarded for that.
2: That's the thesis at Onramp. Our thesis at ten thirty one TFTC. Don't eat the marshmallow. Wait, wait for the mountain of marshmallows. It's
3: poison. It's poison.
2: It's poison. Yeah. Gentlemen,
3: uh, it's I'm been a pleasure. all revised
1: here. That's it.
2: Okay. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. This is a great way to start the year. I guess we'll have may we may have some closure on whether or not the ETFs are approved by the next time we record. Um, so next week should be interesting too. Come back and join us at the last trade.
0: Thanks, Thanks, guys. See ya.